Large-scale retailers, including Walmart, are reporting better-than-expected earnings. American spending habits say a lot about the state of the economy. New government data and reports from retailers show Americans are still shopping and prioritizing what they need. Today is Wednesday, November 16th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, California releases a plan to reduce its dependence on fossil fuels and zero out greenhouse gas emissions by 2045. And the identities of execution workers are often secret, but dozens of current and former employees shared their experiences with NPR. They say they suffered mental health consequences. They think about it again and again, and then over time, there's this profound sense of shame or guilt that begins to emerge. More on the mental health consequences of taking part in executions coming up. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Ukrainian cities are reporting mixed progress in restoring electricity a day after a Russian missile barrage damaged energy systems across the country. NPR's Greg Myrie reports rolling power cuts are still the norm nationwide. Late in the day, the mayor of Kiev said about half the homes and businesses in the capital city were still without power because of damage caused by the Russian strikes. The northeastern city of Kharkiv and the western city of Lviv lost most of their power due to the missile strikes, but mayors there said electricity had been restored to the vast majority of residents a day later. Ukraine's major cities have all been affected to varying degrees by the Russian bombing campaign directed at the energy system. The cities have power but lack their full capacity and therefore schedule power cuts for several hours every day. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Kyiv. The heavy Russian airstrikes are indirectly blamed for the deadly incident in Poland, a missile landing beyond the Ukrainian war zone in neighboring Poland, a NATO country. The U.S. says it concurs with Poland's findings so far that the projectile was astray from a Ukrainian air defense system that was being used to fend off a Russian onslaught. Here's Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. Whatever the final conclusions may be, the world knows that Russia bears ultimate responsibility for this incident. Two people were killed in the missile strike. Senate Senator Mitch McConnell has survived a challenge to his leadership of Republicans in the chamber. Senator Rick Scott tried to unseat him as minority leader but didn't get the votes. And Pierre's Domenico Montanero has more on McConnell's influence, including with candidates backed by former President Donald Trump. It's interesting people talking about uh, Trump candidates who were problematic in some swing states, states even that leaned right, places like Ohio with J.D. Vance, Ted Budd in North Carolina. They were struggling until Mitch McConnell came in with his uh, Senate leadership fund that's aligned with him and spent hundreds of millions of dollars on campaigns of struggling Trump candidates. And they're going to be uh, owing a lot of why they're there to Mitch McConnell. And now to Los Angeles, where a county sheriff says 25 recruits were injured when a car drove into a group out for their training run this morning. And here's Liz Baker with the latest. The cadets were running in formation down the street just a few blocks from the sheriff's training center when a vehicle going too fast and the wrong way plowed into them. Several recruits were severely injured. One was on a ventilator, according to L.A. County Sheriff Alex Villanueva. Photos from the scene show a black SUV-style car on the sidewalk with a smashed-up front end and a utility pole downed in front of it. The driver of the vehicle, a 22-year-old man from Diamond Bar, California, was also injured in the crash and is in custody. The California Highway Patrol is looking into all possible causes of the crash, whether the driver was distracted, impaired, or intentionally targeted the recruits. It's NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. We should find out tomorrow if the MBTA's Green Line extension will open this month. A spokesman for the MBTA says General Manager Steve Poftak will update the T's board tomorrow on the project. The Green Line extension will bring trolley service into Medford. The completion date was initially set to be last December, but that's been delayed several times. The most recent plan calls for the extension to open this month. Doctors groups across Massachusetts say the respiratory virus known as RSV is stretching the capacity of emergency departments and hospitals in the state. The majority of cases are in children. Groups, including the Massachusetts Medical Society, issued a statement today recommending ways to prevent RSV heading into the holidays. They say it's critical to vaccinate all kids over six months against the flu and COVID. They also recommend frequent hand washing. And doctors say if a child does get sick, keep them home until they've been free from any fever for at least 24 hours. The city of Cambridge is looking to hire someone to handle its growing rat population. WBR's Josie Guarino spoke with one city councillor who thinks it's time the city use every weapon in its arsenal. I see him at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, you know, on my street, you know, and, and it's just like, you know, they kind of look at you like, yeah, what are you going to do? City Councilor Mark McGovern says the city is going to add five times as many smart boxes around Cambridge to trap and electrocute rats. Plus, hand out more rat-resistant trash bins and consider using a special rat birth control deployed in bait boxes. Because rats reproduce so quickly, so there are some cities that have been piloting birth control. McGovern says city leaders need to investigate the birth control approach a little more. In the meantime, the city will post a job opening in December for a rat liaison who will run an online dashboard to let residents see how the fight against infestation is going. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Josie Guarino. Clouds and a few shots of sunshine to close out the day. Clear skies on the way tonight. Temperatures drop again to the mid-30s. Some strong winds kicking up. Tomorrow should be more generous with the sunshine. Highs reaching the mid-40s, still on the windy side. 46 degrees now in Boston at 4.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users. Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at avast.com. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Our spending habits say a lot about the state of the U.S. economy. And today, we have some new clues about where the economy has been and where it's headed. And people, this actually includes some positive news. NPR's Alina Seljuk is here to give us the update. Hey, Alina. Hello, hello. Hello, hello. Okay, so what is the top headline here? So big picture, we are still shopping a lot. Uh, The Mm -hmm. Commerce Department says retail spending in October rose 1.3% from September and 8.3% compared to last year. You know, for months we have been saying that any increase in spending has been because of higher prices. We're spending more to buy less. But this report is slightly more optimistic than that. It's the biggest jump in retail sales since February. But people are definitely prioritizing necessities, groceries and gas, where inflation is high. This has meant big gains for Walmart. It's the biggest grocery seller in the U.S. Here's CEO Doug McMillan. Customers that came to us less frequently in the past are now shopping with us more often, including higher income customers. 
And Walmart is really using food to draw customers. They're promising, for example, to keep the prices of the Thanksgiving meal the same as last year. Hmm. Okay, so people are still spending on food, but I guess does that mean they're cutting back on stuff that's not quite as necessary? Are we seeing that? Yes. So spending at restaurants and bars saw one of the biggest increases for October. That's your food and drink. At stores, a few categories are just not selling well. That's electronics, clothes, sporting goods, furniture. All this really hurt Target. It doesn't have the same grocery draw as Walmart. Target reported a slowdown in sales. Here, CEO Brian Cornell. Consumers are feeling increasing levels of stress, driven by persistently high inflation. Rapidly rising interest rates and an elevated sense of uncertainty about their economic prospects. A few ways Target saw this was, you know, shoppers really hunting for sales and discounts, choosing smaller package sizes, or switching from name brands to store brands. We just heard the mention of rapidly rising interest rates. I mean, they're a piece of this overall picture, right? What can you tell us about how people are responding to interest rates? Actually, we got something on this、uh, from Home Depot and Lowe's. Might be counterintuitive, but higher interest rates seem to be prompting some home renovations. Both home improvement stores reported higher sales. Of course, rising prices played a role, but also, it's a bad time to be buying a home, so people seem to be fixing up homes they already have. Huh? Okay. So, what does all of this tell us, Alina, about the kind of shape that? Family finances are in as we all head into the holiday season with gift shopping coming up. You say head into. I think we're solidly in it. <laughs>、totally. I feel like I was shopping for holiday sales like before I finished my Halloween candy. <laughs> Anyways,、um, overall, the National Retail Federation is forecasting a pretty strong holiday spending、um, rate,、uh, growing faster than average, with inflation definitely part of it. We know people are increasingly dipping into whatever maybe they saved up during the pandemic, or from getting a raise this year, or charging their credit cards. And actually, speaking of credit cards, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York said this week that credit card balances recently saw the biggest jump in more than 20 years. They climbed 15 percent in late summer, early、um, late summer, early fall. Wow, that is NPR's Alina Selyuk. Thank you, Alina. Thank you. If you want to know how climate change is affecting the world today, you could ask scientists who track weather patterns, or you could ask humanitarian relief workers who are trying to help people facing drought and starvation. In East Africa, years of failed rainy seasons have created a humanitarian crisis. Earlier this week, we heard about the situation in Somalia. Today, we're joined by David Miliband of the International Rescue Committee, who has just returned from a trip to Ethiopia. Good to talk to you again. Good to be with you, Ari. Tell us what you saw on your visit to Ethiopia. Yeah, I travelled to the eastern part of Ethiopia. It borders with the country of Somalia, with Kenya and Somalia. It makes up the three countries of East Africa. And what you see there is unmistakable evidence of the price of the climate crisis being paid today by some of the poorest people in the world. I mean, this is a country that doesn't just have a history of poverty; it's got a history of conflict. And when you meet internally displaced people from five or seven years ago, and you hear from them that resources and stress on resources were one of the reasons for the conflict, when you meet farmers who tell you that their family herd of forty cattle is down to just one, which、mm. I saw and heard about, when you look out of the window of your car and when you stop and look at the sorghum 
uh, plants. You see they're yellow at the bottom and you see there isn't proper nutrition in the flowers at the top. You can see that this is not just a, a one-off. This is fundamental change in the climate facing vulnerable communities around the world. So it was a, an appropriate visit last week for the first week of the UN conference this week. Yeah. It's meant to be discussing how to mitigate the impact of climate change. The message is you've got to adapt to climate change that's already happening as well as mitigate further change down the road. I want to ask you about the climate conference, but before we leave the scene in Ethiopia, um, can you tell us about somebody you met who who you vividly remember? Yes, I mean, we, the International Rescue Committee, we run water projects around the country. And for every project, there is a, a steering committee elected of the local community. I talked to a woman in her early 30s, and I said to her, look, one year, two years drought, that doesn't make a climate crisis. Tell me how the climate or whether the climate has changed in your lifetime. And she said to me, just think about Lake Haramea. This was a source of fish and therefore nutrition, but also employment 30 years ago when she was born. Now it hardly exists. And the image of that woman adapting to climate change, the climate crisis in her own community, trying to adapt, trying to work to sustain her family, that, that really sticks with me. This conversation, of course, is happening during the UN Climate Summit in Egypt. And the nature of climate change is that this situation is only going to get worse. The world is only going to get hotter. And so what is the long-term solution? Well, I think that the long-term solution is obviously to get off the addiction to fossil fuels. Uh, we know why climate change is happening. We know the risks that we're taking. And don't be fooled by the statistic of, an, uh, of the danger of a 1.5 degrees average rise in global temperatures. That average rise is associated with more extreme weather events. The tragedy is that because of 20 years of inaction, we're now in a situation where we don't just have to mitigate future climate change, we have to adapt to existing climate change. And the richer countries of the world have to lead on both fronts. The good news is that on mitigation, on preventing future climate change, the European Union, China, and America now have legislative commitments that are pretty ambitious. There's still some spoilers. Russia, Saudi Arabia, not made commitments. But the three biggest emitters, EU, US, and China, have made uh, commitments. You're a former British Foreign Secretary. You've attended these summits before. How effective do you think these gatherings are for making real substantive change that impacts the lives of the people most affected by climate change? Well, they're not very effective, but they're all we've got. We're living in a fragmented political world where risks are increasingly global, but resilience is increasingly country-specific. That's why we're in a mess. And there are all sorts of problems with the UN uh, process, but we've got to make it work. And I was encouraged to listen to Secretary Kerry, former Secretary Kerry, now Climate Envoy Kerry, who highlighted 20 countries in the world are responsible for 80% of the emissions. Those are countries that have to lead, and that's not yet happening, but that has to happen within the UN process. Uh, obviously, there are 190 countries in the world. They all have a veto on the final declaration, but those 20 countries have no excuses, and they need to get on with it. David Miliband is head of the International Rescue Committee. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Turns out more people are reporting confrontations between humans and owls in Washington and Oregon. Yes, you heard that right. Confrontations between humans and owls. NPR's Jacqueline Diaz looked into this. 
Kirsten Matheson was walking alone in the woods by her home in Hansville, Washington, when she was attacked. I was walking on my driveway and something, you know, swiped my head. Then I uh, ducked and uh, looked up in this owl that I had have seen before over the last couple of years. This particular owl is white with gray feathers, a sharp beak, and sharper talons. She waited a few minutes and walked back to head home. The owl wasn't having it. It flew back around and it got me in the back of the head. (laughs) There was a lot of screaming. She said it was like being punched by someone with rings on. To avoid the owl's wrath, Matheson ceded one part of her property to the owl for a week before walking even close to the bird's territory. But then, a week later, the owl attacked again. And that time it got me behind the ear. That one was worse. There was more deeper cuts. She had seen this owl before and never had any issues like this. What was going on? It turns out that barred owls have been blamed for several similar attacks in the Pacific Northwest. At least one park in SeaTac, Washington, warned visitors of the area's aggressive owl that attacked several people. I've been told that I must have, it's a bad omen, that I just should be on the lookout for uh, something else to happen. The reality is slightly less interesting, according to wildlife biologist Jonathan Slott. He works with the Wildlife Conservation Society. They're aggressive mm. owls, and they're highly territorial. Barred owls like to nest in the cavities of trees. Like any reduction in available habitat for breeding would put them in closer proximity to to humans. So what does that mean for Matheson in the short term? It's not like forever for her life she's doomed. (laughs) With humans, it's certainly not Mm. predatory behavior, but it's certainly a a territorial aggression. Jacqueline Diaz on the Owlbeat, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR is All Things Considered. Prison workers who have taken part in executions are talking with NPR about the toll the nature of their work has taken on their mental health. That story is just ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Berry & Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. And the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's upcoming season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at BSO.org. It was a downward trend on Wall Street today. The Dow dipped about a tenth of a percent, 39 points, to close at 33,554. S&P lost eight-tenths of a percent to finish the day at 39.59. The Nasdaq lost more than one-and-a-half percent to finish at 11,184. JetBlue will begin flying nonstop from Boston to Paris next year. The airline said today it'll be JetBlue's second transatlantic route from Logan. Service from Boston to London began in August. JetBlue will begin flying from New York to Paris next summer before it adds the flights from Boston. Business news starts at 6.30 on Marketplace. It's now 4.19. WBUR supporters include Delta Dental, reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. And the Elliott Hotel, offering luxury suites and historic back bay for small group meetings and holiday parties, all catered by Uni Restaurant, ElliottHotel.com. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. 
Details at WBUR.org slash cars. And the forecast clouds have broken up a bit this afternoon. We should have clouds to start the night tonight. Some strong winds, cold ones too, in the mid-30s. And then we should have clear skies by dawn tomorrow. During the day tomorrow, bright and brisk. Lots of sunshine, highs in the mid-40s. Then pretty much the same thing for Friday. Sunny with a chilly wind, about 45 degrees tops. 46 now in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Fidelity. With Fidelity Income Planning, Fidelity looks at how much clients saved, how much they'll need, and helps them build a plan for cash flow so they can go from saving to living. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The headline on the bottom of the New York Post's front page today reads simply, Florida Man Makes Announcement, page 26. That was about former President Donald Trump launching his latest bid for the White House. The Wall Street Journal's editorial board called him the Republican Party's biggest loser. Even Fox News is cooling on Trump. Murdoch-owned media companies had been among Trump's biggest boosters, and now NPR media correspondent David Folkenflik is looking into whether they are bailing on him. David, tell us more about how Murdoch outlets are covering this announcement. Well, so much is pegged, as you suggest, to the uh, unrealized red wave of last Tuesday's elections. It simply didn't materialize, and a lot of folks are putting that at Trump's doorstep, given how many of the major candidates he endorsed uh, flailed uh, at the polls. Um, You've seen the New York Post really deriding him and at the same time denying him oxygen. That page 26 story was short. It was brief. It sort of made fun of the lack of knowledge about his cholesterol levels, you know, did not take him seriously as a consequential political figure. The Wall Street Journal, as you note, you know, essentially said it's time for him to get out of the business of this so Republicans can regroup and prove themselves. And let me give you a flavor of the ambivalence on Fox News, you know, and Fox Business, really the homes of his strongest support. This clip I want to play from you is from Fox Business Network's Stuart Varney, a longtime Trump champion. He's asking a question here of a Fox News contributor whose name is Laura Trump, that is the wife of Eric Trump. Here's what Varney asked. You were there, so I'm sure you're very supportive of of, of your (laughs) father-in-law, but those of us on the outside looking at it, it didn't seem as he got the old magic. Even stars uh, like Laura Ingram and Tucker Carlson have suggested Trump would be a mixed bag for the Republican Party. They've been pretty full-throated defenders and supporters until now. How is this different from the way Murdoch-owned media outlets responded to other tough times for Trump, from the impeachments to the insurrection? Well, look, we have seen this before. It's worth noting the Murdoch swung away during the hearings of the January 6th committee earlier this year. But then they snapped back into line when Trump supporters were outraged by the FBI search of Mar-a-Lago for classified documents held by Trump. Why? Well, those Trump supporters make up Fox's core audience. That's how Fox dominated in the era of streaming and in the emergence of these new right wing outfits like Newsmax and OANN. Even so, this represents a significant shift. The the Murdoch uh, support, particularly through Trump, has been real. Trump noticed he's been trashing the Murdochs of late. And I think that there's sign of a a potential real rift. So is the conclusion here that 
backing losing candidates is, in Murdoch world, a greater offense than trying to overturn democracy? I think the Murdochs got a lot of what they wanted out of Trump. Those uh, very conservative uh, justices appointed the Supreme Court, uh, huge uh, tax uh, cuts for, for, for the wealthy. And it's a moment of weakness for Trump. Uh, Lachlan and Rupert Murdoch have signaled they want to move on. Somebody uh, who I spoke to who has talked to Lachlan says that right now, you know, Fox News can cover the news as it's happened, both in opinion and in uh, uh, on the news side. And they won't be tying themselves into pretzels to try to make things look good for Murdoch. You know, I think it's a moment of weakness and they want to see they can take advantage of it to find a new face for the Republican Party. How are we going to know whether this time the split is real and not just temporary? I'm something of a skeptic on this. It's like Lucy with the football again and again with Charlie Brown. I will say when the campaign starts to pick up, if they give running room and license to major Republican figures, particularly those on Capitol Hill, to criticize Trump without being beaten down and suffering a real backlash from Fox stars, that'll tell you something. But if Trump's followers rebel, I think the Murdochs will probably sprint to the head of the Trump parade and make it look like they were leading all along. That's NPR media correspondent David Fulkenflick. Thank you. You bet. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Brazil is back. That is, back in the environmental protection game. That was the message from Brazil's president-elect today at the UN Climate Conference in Egypt. Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva talked about his plans to protect the Amazon rainforest after years of record-breaking deforestation. And he even said that he wants to bring a future climate conference to the Amazon. But the newly elected leftist leader faces a lot of challenges to his zero-tolerance promise. And to talk more about that, we're joined now by NPR South America correspondent, Carrie Kahn, who is in Rio de Janeiro. Hey, Carrie. Hi. Hi. Okay, so Lula da Silva just won the election. Like, he hasn't even taken office yet. How come he went to the climate change conference instead of the current president of Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro? The president, Jair Bolsonaro, is a far-right politician who questions climate change, and he has been quite hostile to multilateral approaches to it. Deforestation under an under his administration in the Amazon has hit record highs also. Uh, Lula was received there like a rock star today <laughs> at the conference. Um, he played right into it, too. Que o Brasil está de volta. Está de volta. He said to great applause, uh, Brazil is back, back in being a leader in environmental protection. And he went on listing a lot of ways that Brazil will take on climate change and that preserving the Amazon will be a top priority of his new government. Uh, the majority of the Amazon rainforest sits in Brazil's territory. Uh, Lula has just won a very contentious election against Bolsonaro here. It, Bolsonaro was in power for the last four years and dismantled a lot of enforcement and protections in the Amazon. Illegal logging, illegal fishing, illegal farming rose to 15-year highs here, and Lula has vowed to reverse that, and he promised in this speech, and he did in his campaign, zero deforestation by 2030. Zero deforestation? That, that's a really bright line. I mean, what other promises did he make today? 
He talked about creating a ministry for Native people so that Indigenous people govern for themselves. He talked about sustainable agriculture and new technologies to continue providing jobs for people in the Amazon. But remember, Lula is a leftist. He's 77 years old. He came up politically through his Unionist Workers Party, and he talks a lot about the poor and inequality. And here's a bit from when he was talking about the return of Brazil to the international stage. Voltamos para ajudar a construir uma ordem mundial pacífica, assentada no diálogo, no multilateralismo. He says we're back to help build a peaceful world order to end poverty and inequality. There will be no future as long as we continue, he says, digging a bottomless pit of inequalities between rich and poor. While he gets a big applause at the UN conference for such a speech, he's had troubles back home emphasizing his support for the poor. Yeah, how is he doing in Brazil? Like, do you think he'll be able to keep all these promises that he's making? So last week, he talked about wanting to raise the federal spending cap to continue cash transfers to Brazil's poorest. And the markets just slapped him hard. The Real Brazil's uh, currency dropped nearly 4% that day. Um, Lula may have a very short honeymoon here when he takes office January 1st. This country is divided. Bolsonaro lost by a very slim margin, and his party is now the largest in Congress. He made a lot of gains in the election, and Brazil's economy is sluggish and still struggling post-pandemic and with high inflation. That is NPR's Kerry Khan in Rio de Janeiro. Thank you, Kerry. You're welcome. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. In sports, Patriots running back Ty Montgomery's out for the season. An NFL source tells the Boston Globe Montgomery suffered a shoulder sur- or had shoulder surgery for an injury he suffered in the Pats' opening game against Miami. Celtics are down in Atlanta to take on the Hawks tonight. Boston's looking for its eighth straight win, but the team will be without Marcus Smart and Malcolm Brogdon because of injuries. The Boston Bruins are off until tomorrow. And former Red Sox skipper Terry Francona has won his third title as Manager of the Year. Francona was named the American League Manager of the Year by the Baseball Writers Association. Each time he's won the award, he did it as a leader of the Cleveland Guardians. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters return to delight all ages this holiday season, beginning November 25th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. In a country that's increasingly polarized, many voters in the midterm said it doesn't have to be that way. We saw plenty of voters out there who are looking at candidate quality. Does this person seem like they would make a good governor or a good senator beyond just the fact of whether they're a Republican or a Democrat? I'm Anthony Brooks. Split ticket voters and their impact on the latest election. That's On Point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Kentucky Senator Mitch McConnell has been re-elected as leader of the Senate Republicans. He'd been challenged by Florida Senator Rick Scott, who criticized him after Republicans failed to win control of the Senate in midterm elections. McConnell replied to that criticism. We underperformed among voters who did not like President Biden's performance in, among independents and among moderate Republicans who looked at us and concluded too much chaos, too much negativity, 
and we turned off a lot of these centrist voters. Meanwhile, a bill protecting same-sex and interracial marriage has cleared a procedural vote in the Senate. Support for the bill came after the Supreme Court overturned the constitutional right to abortion. Justice Clarence Thomas suggested that the high court might revisit a decision protecting same-sex marriage. NATO says an explosion that killed two people in Poland was most likely caused by a misfired Ukrainian air defense missile. Terry Schultz reports from Brussels. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg says the blame still lies with Russia. Stoltenberg says preliminary evidence now shows the explosion in eastern Poland was likely caused by an errant Ukrainian air defense missile. Suspicion in the immediate aftermath of the blast had fallen quickly on Russia. But Stoltenberg says there's no sign this was an attack. And we have no indication that Russia is preparing offensive military actions against NATO. That's important because if Russia were doing so, NATO would most likely have to react, possibly militarily. But even so, Stoltenberg says Moscow is not exonerated. Russia bears ultimate responsibility as it continues its illegal war against Ukraine. He says the incident has not caused NATO to beef up already enhanced air defenses. For NPR News, I'm Terry Schultz in Brussels. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts transportation officials are warning there may be big traffic jams next week as people hit the road for the Thanksgiving holiday. To help, construction will be halted on state highways and additional police and road crews will be out on patrol. WBUR's Simone Rios has more. MassDOT Secretary Jamie Tesler says traffic before and after Thanksgiving could be worse than before the pandemic began. We strongly encourage members of the public to plan ahead and be informed by checking current travel conditions, traveling during off-peak hours, and please consider taking public transportation. The lightest travel day next week will be Thanksgiving itself, so people driving to and from their holiday destinations on Thursday could face the least amount of traffic. No matter when you drive, officials are reminding people to wear seatbelts. They say 2021 had the greatest number of road fatalities in 14 years. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. A dozen Boston schools will receive a total of $2 million in grants over the next three years. The Boston Schools Fund announced its donation today. That group advocates for educational equity in the city. The first round of grants will provide the schools with technical assistance and coaching from experts. The goal is to improve metrics such as state testing results. About 1 in 10 students in Lowell are without housing. Statewide, the Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education says more than 18,000 students have faced homelessness at some point this school year. WBUR's Amanda Beeland has more on efforts to support these young people ahead of the holidays. It all starts with a question. Tell me about your housing situation. That's what Rebecca Duda asks when students register for school in Lowell. Duda is a homeless liaison and coordinator of the district's Family Resource Center. She says it's about having an open conversation. Families can be hesitant. They may not feel that they are homeless um, because they might be doubled up with another family member, but our role is to provide that support to get the child into school and provide some stability. Duda says stability means everything from housing to long-term mental health support. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amanda Beeland. The forecast is coming up.
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by William James College's online graduate certificate in school leadership, a principal prep program. Apply now for January at williamjames.edu. We should have lots of clouds over the next several hours, and then they should push on out and leave clear skies behind. Some gusty winds falling to about 36 overnight tonight. Then for tomorrow uh, and possibly Friday as well, should only make it to about 46 degrees. Sunny skies both days, still on the windy side, though. Looks like we'll be stuck in the 40s over the weekend. 46 degrees now in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp. Connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and anxiety. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Arizona executed a prisoner today. Texas is set to execute another this evening. Meanwhile, Missouri, Alabama, and Oklahoma plan to execute more people before the end of the year. Though hundreds of workers will carry these executions out, few know who they are or what their jobs require. There are laws that forbid many of their names from being revealed. But NPR investigative reporter Kiara Eisner found dozens of current and former workers who were willing to talk. They say their health suffered and that they had little support from the government to cope with the consequences of their unusual jobs. And we'll warn you, this report includes a description of how an execution is carried out, which may disturb some listeners. Pretending to die isn't typically part of a correctional officer's job. But when the court issues a death warrant, there's often a team that has to rehearse how they'll execute the prisoner. In Nevada, one of the people they practiced on was Officer Caterino Escobar. At first, he was handling it fine. The team that was in charge of bringing the inmate handcuffed me, and I'm just playing along. But then the other officers took him into the same gas chamber where 23 people had been killed. Imagine a room the size of a bathroom stall, framed with huge windows on the sides. When the team began to strap Escobar down to the gurney inside that tiny space, he says something strange started to happen. It was so real that the environment within the gas chamber changed. I believed that I was being executed. I wasn't acting or playing no longer. 16 years later, he still thinks about how it changed him. It doesn't matter how you look at it. You participated in taking a human being's life. And that is not to be taken lightly. Over the course of four months, NPR spoke with 26 people who worked on more than 200 executions across 17 states. Most changed their minds about the death penalty after being involved. It wasn't always because they felt capital punishment was unfair to the prisoner. Often it was because they realized how hard it was on them. Workers said they were left with serious physical and mental consequences from participating in executions. For several months there, I was pretty fragile. Staff have gone to alcoholism, drug addiction, considered suicide. Weight loss and weight gain, hair loss, irritability for sure. I went through this really long period of having insomnia. You realize that you're suffering from post-traumatic stress. That was Jeannie Woodford, a warden from California, Allison Miller, a Florida public defender, Corrections Superintendent Frank Thompson from Oregon, and Bill Breeden, a religious minister. 
Breeden volunteered to be inside the chamber. But for most of the others NPR spoke with, execution work was a required and sometimes unexpected part of their jobs. There were a few who said their execution tasks didn't bother them much then and still don't bother them now. But many more told NPR that the time they spent on executions was not only the most stressful part of their work, but the most difficult part of their lives. They think about it again and again and again, and then over time, there's this profound sense of shame or guilt that begins to emerge for people. Joseph Courier is a psychology professor at the University of South Alabama who studies people in the military. He says having to kill takes a toll on them. If you were to compare and contrast which events really haunt people the most after their war zone service, taking someone else's life is the highest predictor of most mental health problems. That veterans suffer from mental health issues like PTSD is well known. Since the September 11th attacks, more servicemen have died from suicide than combat. But although execution workers are also tasked with killing, there's a key difference between the two. Veterans receive lifelong free health care through Veterans Affairs. Execution workers have no comparable support system. Craig Baxley understands the consequences of that. Okay, these are some of the oldest graves that are in the cemetery, and these, these are some of the ones who have been executed. We're in the and graveyard of the state penitentiary in Columbia, South Carolina. The few rusty metal posts that stick out of the grass don't even have names on them, just the five numbers that were assigned to the inmates when they were alive. Baxley used to lead a team that responded to emergencies in the prison that sent its dead here. But to get that role, he says he had to agree to be one of the state's executioners. If you don't do this, you won't get the job. So most of us are not making that much money in South Carolina. So most of us will say, okay, you know, I'll try it. And then you try it and it's too late. With no medical training and no counseling beforehand, Baxley started executing people, most by lethal injection. Uh, I just basically said a prayer and I, I went in there and I had to do a, a couple of them all by myself and push all seven plungers. That plunger is the tool he used to send the drugs into people's veins. Baxley served in the Marines, but he says the two kinds of jobs weren't the same. There's a difference in the killing of a person like this than shooting in a war because they're firing at you and you're firing back. Here, every single one of the death certificates says state-assisted homicide, and the state was me. Right away, it tore him apart. My stomach just felt so bad. It was just twisted and not. I felt like I had cancer. He pretended he was fine, but until recently, he considered suicide. I've also uh, thought many times of killing myself, but I, you know, I've got grandkids now. I met Baxley last year when I first started reporting on executions, and I thought I wouldn't find anyone as marked by the work as him. What I expected was that the more people's jobs removed them from handling the plungers, the physical tools of executions, the better off they'd be. But that's not what the workers told me. I spoke with wardens, religious ministers, journalists, public defenders, and the family of a nurse who also witnessed executions. They weren't the executioner, but they had similar consequences. Ron McAndrew was the warden in Florida who told the electrician to keep the machine going after the head of a man on the electric chair caught fire. The witnesses were aghast. They could not believe they were watching the burning of a human being like that. He said the stress from coordinating that execution and seven others like it was so intense it made his fingers and heels crack. He drank a bottle of scotch a day and was later diagnosed with PTSD. It's been 25 years since he watched that man burn. He still hasn't fully recovered. 
Did you feel responsible in that moment? Of course. I still do. Bill Breeden, the minister, wasn't on the prison's payroll like McAndrew, but he also felt complicit. He was in the federal death chamber in Indiana during Corey Johnson's execution last year. So I prayed for Corey and for all of us, and then I, I entered a prayer by saying, I believe Corey, if he could, would say the same that Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Johnson was then injected with the drug that was supposed to kill him. But minutes later, Breeden heard the prisoner speak up from the gurney. He was still alive. He said, I feel my, my mouth and my hands are on fire. He said that. For months afterwards, Breeden became claustrophobic and would start sobbing in the middle of conversations. He still can't escape the execution, even in his sleep. Sometimes I wake up in the death chamber, in a sense, all of a sudden you can see it again, and you can feel it again, and you can't do anything to stop it. And so in a sense, you kind of get this feel, well, I'm validating this process. And to be standing there totally incapable of, of doing anything while this man is murdered was just the most painful thing I've ever had in my life. Execution work affected even those who didn't have to see people die. I spoke with the son of an engineer who designed gas chambers, a radiologist who took MRI and CT scans of an executed body, and lawyers like Allison Miller. Miller represents people charged with murder in Florida's courtrooms. I cannot underscore what it feels like to stand there and ask 12 people to not kill somebody. Only once has a jury sentenced a client of hers to be executed. That was a man named Markeith Lloyd. Miller still can't forget how her toddler wished her luck when she left for work that day. She said, I hope you save Mr. Markeith. And then I just remember thinking, I didn't. I failed him. I failed her. I failed in this godly task that I was given. It broke me a little. It broke me a lot. Katerina Spinaris is a psychologist who focuses on correctional officers. She says you can get full-blown PTSD from repeated or extreme indirect exposure to traumatic events. So for an occupational hazard as serious as taking a life, even remotely involved workers should be counseled in advance. Afterwards, everyone should have months of support, she says. Think of radiation, you know, like you wouldn't send people to deal with radiation without appropriate suits on. But only one of the dozens of people I spoke with who worked on executions before said they received counseling from the government. Five states are planning to execute people before the end of 2022. Texas, Arizona, Oklahoma, Alabama, and Missouri. None of those states offer workers the kind of long-term support Spinaris recommended. If you're specifically referring to those that work executions, then EAP is what we have available. That's Amanda Hernandez from the Texas Department of Criminal Justice. The short-term counseling service she's talking about there is the same EAP, or Employee Assistance Program, available to other state employees. That means, from what they told us, Texas doesn't give any more support to its executioners than it does its tax auditors. Hernandez says the state does offer extra help after some high-stress moments in its prisons. But that's not execution-related. So execution would not be considered that kind of crisis? Not in the sense of providing those services. The other four states planning executions also have basic EAP programs. None help any of the many execution workers who aren't state employees. And all of them are optional. A spokeswoman from Missouri said officers there can also use peer support groups and see trauma specialists. But I talked to a current member of Missouri's execution team. Because none of that was mandatory, he's never sought it out. 
Frank Thompson, the superintendent who oversaw executions in Oregon, says that's part of the problem. You have to understand, correctional officers want to be viewed as not being weak. Some workers think it would help if the government offered more counseling and required everyone to go. But Thompson thinks they would still suffer too much. To continue conducting executions expands the number of victims, i.e. the staff people and their families. That bothered me to the extent that I changed my position on the death penalty. All but two of the people NPR spoke with who used to support executions changed their minds after they had to help carry them out. Today, Thompson's on the board of Death Penalty Action. The nonprofit organized a protest at the steps of the U.S. Supreme Court in June. What do we want? Now. What do we want? Now. What do we want? Now. With the white columns of the court right behind them, dozens of activists from around the country held hands and grabbed each other's shoulders as they began to sing. Keep your eyes on the prize. Hold on. The prize they had their eyes on was an end to executions a goal now shared by many who used to carry them out. Kiara Eisner, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, California's plan to cut out greenhouse gas emissions by 2045. Also, a wedding planned for the White House. It's 448. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Clouds and a few shots of sunshine earlier today. We should have clear skies eventually overnight tonight. Temperatures dropping to the mid-30s. Some strong winds kicking up. Tomorrow should be uh, generous on the sunshine. Highs reaching the mid-40s. Still on the windy side, though. Sunshine should reappear on Friday back up in the mid-40s. This is 90.9 WBUR. Celtics are down in Atlanta to take on the Hawks tonight. The Bruins are off until tomorrow. WBUR supporters include Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, helping you find a MedEx Medicare supplemental plan that works for you. Visit bluecrossma.com go. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. If WBUR is indispensable in your daily life, make it a priority in your year-end giving. A monthly gift will keep you grounded in facts and new ideas. As our thanks, get a year of The New Yorker on your digital device and in your mailbox at a 40% savings. It's a limited time offer, so get in on it while you can at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. California is out today with a new ambitious climate change plan aimed at reducing the state's dependence on fossil fuels. From member station KQED, Kevin Stark reports. You can think of this plan as a roadmap for how California could essentially zero out greenhouse gas emissions in a little more than two decades. The plan calls for slashing emissions by 48 percent by 2030, based on 1990 levels. Energy analysts say that's a more aggressive target than what President Biden's proposed for the country. Lauren Sanchez is climate advisor to Governor Gavin Newsom. This plan will indeed be very difficult to achieve because of the scale of the task 
and the speed with which it needs to be delivered. But the governor will not take failure as an option, and neither should any of us. Newsom pushed the state's Air Resources Board to move faster after it released a draft plan earlier this year. Included in the latest version is the state's mandate to phase out the sale of new gasoline-powered cars. He also worked with legislative leaders to pass a broad climate package that included the legislation to achieve carbon neutrality. If realized, California's climate plan could transform daily life in the nation's most populous state. Tens of millions of electric cars would have to be added to the roads, and even with that, many more Californians would need to use public transit than do now. Seven million existing homes and commercial buildings that use fuel for heating and cooking would have to switch to electric in a little more than a decade. The backbone of the plan is a cleaner, more robust power grid. It includes a commitment to stop building gas power plants, quadruple wind and solar generation, all while doubling the state's capacity to produce electricity. That won't be easy. The state narrowly avoided rolling blackouts this year after demand nearly surpassed supply during a heat wave that baked the state for 10 days. Leanne Randolph is the state's top air regulator. We need to take action to reduce the worst impacts of a changing climate, and there is only one way to do that. Break forever our dependence on fossil fuels, the harsh grip of petroleum, and move as fast as we can to a clean energy economy. Randolph says this plan could drive the state's economy forward, creating an estimated 4 million jobs, and address one of the state's persistent environmental problems, punishing smog. And by rapidly shifting away from fossil fuels, the plan delivers public health benefits to everyone in California and most importantly, to those communities suffering from persistent air pollution. The state estimates it would cut air pollution by 71 percent and save Californians $200 billion in health care costs due to pollution. For NPR News, I'm Kevin Stark in San Francisco. President Biden's eldest granddaughter is about to join a rare club. This weekend, Naomi Biden will become one of the few people to say, I do, at the White House. NPR's Barbara Sprunt brings us this report on the history of weddings at what may be the most exclusive address in the nation. President Biden is known for having a very close relationship with his family. A few months ago, his granddaughter, Naomi Biden, told the world that she and her fiancé, Peter Neal, would get married on the South Lawn. They're the 19th couple ever to tie the knot at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Some of these past weddings were small family gatherings, but that wasn't the case in 1967. President Lyndon Johnson's daughter Linda was getting married to Chuck Robb. Television crews captured it all. Years later, she recalled how nervous she was. I took a lot of deep breaths first, and I had practiced uh, walking up and down the steps in that long gown because you didn't want to trip and you didn't want to be looking at your feet all the time. The president, who had a reputation for being rather brusque, spoke at the reception the night before. I suppose that all fathers uh, worry a little bit about the men who go out with their daughters, and of course I'm no exception. But the job that I hold uh, does have certain advantages. He pulled out the Secret Service reports of the groom's comings and goings from the White House. His first report starts out Saturday, 2 p.m., completed Sunday, 3 a.m. The president smiled and tore them up. Chuck, here's all your... Bachelor passed, reduced to a bunch of wedding confetti. 
Four years later, President Richard Nixon was in the White House when his daughter, Trisha, got engaged. The press spent months covering every detail of the wedding, the gown, the guest list. There was even drama surrounding the nearly seven-foot-tall wedding cake that had been dubbed Washington's newest monument. A scaled-down recipe of the six-tiered lemon cake was shared to the public, but kitchens across the country called it a sloppy mess. Coverage was so intense, the White House had to release an update. Here's NPR. On June 3rd, 1971. Well, if you have your pencil and paper ready, we now have the revised White House recipe on Trisha Nixon's wedding cake. Heat the oven to 325 degrees. Use it's a reminder that this was a national affair, the public getting involved with the closest thing the U.S. has to royalty. Why don't you call us at National Public Radio tomorrow on the telephone and tell us how this recipe worked out. Trisha Nixon faced a planning hurdle most weddings wouldn't have to deal with. It was during the Vietnam War, and protesters gathered daily outside the White House gates with bullhorns. Lucy Breathitt was the White House social secretary in the Nixon administration. She told me about the moment Trisha Nixon said she was engaged. We all, you know, squealed and yelled and jumped up and down and were so happy. But where to have the wedding? A fan of outdoor weddings, Breathitt suggested the Rose Garden. Bingo, she said, that's what we'll do. Afterwards, Breathitt went to inspect the venue and... Can you guess what I did not see any of in the Rose Garden? Not a rose in sight. So we began moving heaven and earth. News of the wedding dominated the airwaves, including NPR. The event is being treated much as if it were a coronation, a moonshot, and a holy day all wrapped up into one. And on the day itself, the thing every wedding planner fears, pouring rain. But unlike most couples, the Nixons had a special tool at their disposal. Here's Breathitt. We stayed in radio contact with the Air Force weather bureau open telephone line she says eventually they were told the rain would stop for 35 minutes i ran around and put the cushions in all the chairs that had been in place the intel was right and the wedding ceremony was underway dear friends we are gathered together to unite patricia and edward in marriage the public would later watch footage of the bride and her father waltzing in the white house A feel-good moment in a troubled time, says White House historian Stuart McLaurin. Those were very difficult times, not dissimilar to some of the things that we're experiencing now. And to have a moment of living vicariously through this young bride and groom, I think that was just a moment of happiness on the part of the American people. There's intense curiosity about the Biden wedding this weekend, a private party that the family is paying for, not taxpayers. The details are still under wraps. But as someone who's already organized one White House wedding and knows what a big undertaking it is, Breathitt has a piece of advice for Naomi Biden. Be brave. Be brave. I certainly do wish them well. Barbara Sprint, NPR News, Washington. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Japaigo, committed to delivering transformative healthcare solutions for women and families. Japaigo believes that where a person lives should not determine if they live. More at jhpiego.org. 
and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from Progressive Insurance, with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This is WBUR. We should have partly cloudy skies to start the night. Some strong winds, cold ones too, in the mid-30s. Skies should clear out by daybreak, then tomorrow bright and brisk, lots of sunshine. Highs in the mid-40s. 45 degrees now in Boston. WBUR supporters include German International School Boston. Sign up for preschool and kindergarten open house on November 19th at gisbos.org. I'm here and now executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This will not be my campaign. This will be our campaign altogether. Donald Trump launches a campaign for president for 2024. How that campaign will affect the ongoing investigation surrounding him coming up. It's Wednesday, November 16th, and this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, initial investigations suggest the missile strike in Poland was not a deliberate attack, but potentially a stray missile fired by Ukraine. The Dead Sea is a natural wonder that's rapidly drying up. The reason? Climate change and the exploitation of natural resources. Also ahead, researchers say rats like the same kind of tempos and music that humans like. Wall Street losses will have the numbers coming up and the forecast, it's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The top Pentagon officer says Ukraine has been successful in battles against Russian forces. But General Mark Milley also says he doubts Ukraine has the firepower to achieve its goal, kicking all the Russian forces out of the country. More from NPR's Tom Bowman. General Milley has already said that neither the Russians nor the Ukrainians can achieve a military victory. And now he's expanding on that, saying the Ukrainian victories against the Russians in some cities are relatively small. And the Russians still control some 20 percent of the country. Kherson and Kharkiv, physically, geographically, are relatively small compared to the whole. So that that, the military task of militarily kicking the Russians physically out of Ukraine is a very difficult task. Very difficult. But Ukrainian officials continue to say that all Russians must leave the country and Russia must pay damages caused by the war before any negotiations. Tom Bowman, NPR News, Washington. Philadelphia is the latest destination for a Texas program sending recently arrived immigrants to major Democrat-led cities. NPR's Laura Benshoff reports the first bus got in this morning, a day after Texas Governor Greg Abbott announced the expansion. 28 people arrived around 6 a.m. Mayor Jim Kenney says some immediately grabbed buses or trains to head on to their final destinations. Others went to a welcoming center to regroup. Most are expected to continue traveling to meet family members elsewhere in the country. And many, if not all, are seeking asylum and have demonstrated that they face real dangers 
because of their race, religion, or their politics. City agencies and local immigrant support groups say they've been gearing up for months to welcome possible arrivals. The Texas Initiative has sent more than 13,000 migrants to Chicago, New York, and Washington, D.C. since April. Laura Benshoff, NPR News. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is being asked to weigh in on the recent announcement by former President Trump. He is joining the 2024 presidential race. Michael Braun from member station WGCU has more. At the end of a briefing on funding for Southwest Florida, DeSantis was asked about a possible civil war in the Republican Party if voters had to choose between the governor and former President Trump for the party's 2024 presidential nomination. Now, look, I think we, we just we just finished this election. OK, people just need to chill out a little bit on some of this stuff. I mean, seriously, we just ran an election. DeSantis hasn't officially announced plans to run, but is considered a likely contender for the 2024 nomination. For NPR News, I'm Mike Braun. Tesla boss Elon Musk is defending himself in a Delaware courtroom against a shareholder lawsuit challenging his more than $55 billion pay package. Musk denying charges he dictated the terms of the 2018 package or attended any board or committee meetings. On Wall Street today, the Dow was down 39 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Local gay and lesbian advocates are urging Congress to uphold same-sex marriage and interracial marriage rights. Today, a bill that would enact federal protections for those marriages passed a test vote in the U.S. Senate. A final vote is expected later this month. The bill has picked up steam since the U.S. Supreme Court overturned federal abortion rights. Mary Bonato is an attorney with the Boston-based organization GLBTQ Legal Advocates and Defenders. She says the legislation is a crucial measure to ensure the status quo. It is going to do what millions of families and children in this country need which is to be able to count on both state and federal respect of their existing marriages without regard to their sex, their race, their national origin, their ethnicity. The vote comes as Democrats brace for a likely incoming Republican majority in the U.S. House next session. Undergraduate residents, uh, resident assistants at Tufts University are petitioning the National Labor Relations Board to be able to unionize. The RAs get housing paid for by the college in exchange for supervising dorms. The students say that many of them take the jobs because living in Boston is too expensive. They're looking for wages and benefits. A spokesman for Tufts says the school appreciates the RA's hard work and will respect the outcome of any unionization election when it happens. Today marks a year since Mayor Michelle Wu of Boston was sworn in as mayor. She's traveling across the city to celebrate one year in office and hearing from residents about her tenure. Earlier today, she spoke to students at Madison Park Technical Vocational High School in Roxbury. A year later, I'm, I'm really excited. I'm inspired by everything that I've gotten to see and experience, all the people I've gotten to meet, the multiple times I've gotten to be here at Madison Park, um, and to know that even in just 12 months, we've really shown that more is possible. Wu says that at this point in her term, she wants to focus more on connecting with the community. Boston's annual gift from Nova Scotia is being prepped for shipment. A 45-foot white spruce from the Cape Breton community of Christmas Island is being cut today. The tree will leave Nova Scotia next week, bound for the Boston Common, where there will be a tree lighting ceremony December 1st. The tree is Nova Scotia's annual thank you to Boston for sending medical personnel and supplies to the province after a deadly explosion in Halifax in 1917. 
Celtics start up a three-game road trip tonight. First stop, Atlanta, 7.30 tip-off. And in the forecast, some clouds around for the next several hours. They should eventually push out, leave clear skies overnight tonight, down around 36. Tomorrow, only about 46 degrees tops with lots of sunshine. This is WBUR. It's 5.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. The man who denied the results of the last presidential election says he'll be a candidate in the next one. America's comeback starts right now. Two years ago, Donald Trump rallied supporters to overturn democracy, launching a deadly riot at the U.S. Capitol. And that is only part of the reason he is being investigated at the state and federal level. There are also investigations into top-secret documents that he kept at Mar-a-Lago, a criminal tax fraud trial in New York, investigations into the Trump Organization and his personal finances. The list goes on. So does his newly launched 2024 campaign have any impact on these cases? Former U.S. Attorney Barb McQuaid is a professor at University of Michigan Law School. Good to have you back. Thanks, Ari. Great to be with you. Is there any legal prohibition against an investigation of a presidential candidate? There is not. So I don't think there's any legal consequence here. Uh, There is nothing that says you can't investigate someone running for president. Hillary Clinton, for example, was investigated while she was a candidate for president. So legally, no bar. Now, politically, I think there may be some strategic advantage to be gained by announcing before any charges are filed. Let's talk about the politics of this, because we know of two federal investigations involving the president into Mar-a-Lago and the insurrection. And Attorney General Merrick Garland has said prior to Trump's announcement that prosecutors will follow the evidence wherever it leads. Here he was speaking to reporters in July. No person is above the law in this country. Nothing stops us. No, per- I don't know how to maybe say that again. No person is above the law in this country. I can't say it any more clearly than that. Uh, but since President Biden oversees the Justice Department, which is supposed to stand apart from politics, Barb McQuaid, is there a political problem with the Biden DOJ investigating Biden's opponent? Well, there is this you know, special counsel provision that allows the Justice Department to uh, appoint a special counsel when there is a conflict of interest by the Justice Department or uh, some other factor that might cause the public to question the independence of the Justice Department. There's not a requirement that uh, that a special counsel be uh, appointed, but it is a discretionary call and there are certain things that Uh, an attorney general needs to think about. And so when you have someone, if you're investigating your boss, for example, when um, the Justice Department was investigating Donald Trump himself, the sitting president, that's certainly a conflict of interest because he can fire you or he can stop the investigation if he wants to. And so that's the kind of place where a special counsel, I think, has some merit. But in a case like this, we're getting, you know, really quite remote. One, Joe Biden is not a declared candidate yet, though I suppose most of us can assume he will be. Mm -hmm. Donald Trump is a candidate for the Republican Republican primary. It's not clear whether he will even oppose Joe Biden in that election. And we're two years away from that with an investigation that's been ongoing for almost two years already. So I'd be surprised if ultimately a special counsel is appointed here. All right. So that's at the Justice Department. But then there are these state investigations in New York and Georgia. Do you think there are any implications for those cases? 
Again, not legally. I think that Fannie Willis will proceed with her grand jury investigation exactly as she has stated that she would all along. I think Letitia James in New York uh, is well on her way. She's already filed the complaint there back in January. So I think that case will proceed. But again, politically, I think it gives Donald Trump the talking point that he loves so much that he's the victim, that this is a witch hunt. Uh, I announced for my campaign for presidency and all of a sudden I'm charged in Georgia or I'm charged in the federal system. Uh, so I think politically it is a way to um, frame himself as somebody who has been uh, victimized, attacked, for partisan political reasons. I suppose that could carry some weight with a jury, but I don't think it is going to with judges or attorneys general. And so it sounds like you give some weight to the argument that Trump may have announced his candidacy earlier than normal in order to maybe gain some, if not legal protection, then at least talking points on these investigations. Yeah, you never know exactly what motivates someone to do something, particularly Donald Trump, but it certainly has that advantage. Uh, You know, among other things, he can go out and raise money. Uh, He seems to relish campaigning even more than governing. And so he gets to go out and have rallies and people can Mm -hmm. come and they can rally toward his cause. But it does have that additional benefit, Ari, that he can use this talking point to say um, they're out to get me. It's a hoax. It's a partisan witch hunt. Former U.S. Attorney Barb McQuaid. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Ari. Both Poland and NATO now say that a Ukrainian air defense missile likely caused an explosion just inside Poland's border with Ukraine yesterday. The explosion had killed two people, but both parties were quick to emphasize that Ukraine was only trying to defend itself and that Russia was ultimately at fault. NPR's Rob Schmitz joins us now from the Polish capital of Warsaw. Hi, Rob. Hey, Elsa. Okay, so... Yesterday's incident along Poland's eastern border came just as Russia had launched a barrage of missiles at critical infrastructure throughout Ukraine. Can you just talk about like what Polish officials are saying today about what happened? Yeah, Polish President Andrzej Duda spoke today here in Warsaw, and he clarified that after a lot of speculation overnight, the cause of an explosion that killed two workers at a grain storage facility in the border town of Shevodov was likely not a missile launched by Russia, and that it was likely not an intentional attack against Poland. Instead, he said a joint investigation led by U.S. and Polish officials believe this was caused by an errant missile from Ukraine's air defense system. And Elsa, he's saying here that Russian missiles were likely moving in the direction of Poland and turned around back towards Ukraine, and that a trailing Ukrainian air defense missile kept moving in the direction of Poland, ultimately striking Polish territory. He also added that teams on the ground believe the missile was not detonated, but that the damage on the ground was caused by the impact of the missile combined with an explosion from its fuselage. Now, it's worth pointing out that the investigation on the ground in Poland continues, but what Duda said was based on what he's hearing so far from the joint U.S.-Polish team. Okay, and just to be clear, Rob, this is the first time since Russia's war in Ukraine started that a missile has struck a NATO country across the Ukrainian border. What has NATO said about that? Yeah, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg said this incident may have been caused by Ukrainian missile, but that it's not Ukraine's fault. He stressed that Ukraine was simply defending itself. He said he'll have to wait to see what the investigation shows before taking any further steps. But for now, he emphasized that this was not, to his knowledge, a deliberate attack on a NATO country. But what if 
this had been a Russian missile? What would NATO's response have been? Yeah, that's the question many were asking last night when the details were still a little hazy. Many people mentioned NATO's Article 5, which in essence states that an attack on one is an attack on all. But it's not as simple as that. And in fact, Article 5, known as the Collective Defense Clause, goes on to state that should a NATO member be attacked by a non-NATO member, that members should come together and take action they deem necessary given that specific situation. So it's a broad article and it leaves room for several types of actions. Mm. Okay, well, you are in Warsaw right now talking to people there. Mm. What are they telling you about how they're feeling about all this? For the most part, people I've spoken to have told me that because Poland borders Ukraine, that this type of incident was going to eventually happen. But now that it's happened, several people I spoke with, like university student Susanna Kaluga, told me that they're a little more nervous. And also she's saying here that she doesn't know what to think. On one hand, she doesn't want to be too paranoid about this. But on the other, she feels that Poland needs to be more vigilant and not forget this too easily. She said she had a biology test today and that before the test, she thought to herself, should I be studying now or should I be preparing for war? Wow. And so clearly it's gotten her and many others I spoke to more aware of what's happening across their border and the risks that war brings. Yeah. That is NPR's Rob Schmitz joining us from Warsaw, Poland. Thank you so much, Rob. Thanks, Elsa. A spacecraft designed to carry astronauts is on its way to the moon after NASA finally got its massive new moon rocket off the ground this morning. Images sent back by the vehicle show a suited-up mannequin strapped into the commander's seat, plus a view of Earth looking like a blue marble, just as it did in the days of NASA's Apollo moon missions. NPR's Nell Greenfield Boyce reports on what the space agency hopes to achieve with this critical test flight. In the pre-dawn darkness, NASA's launch team at Kennedy Space Center grappled with a hydrogen fuel leak and a faulty Ethernet switch. But then... Seven, six, five, four-stage engine start. Three, two, one, boosters in ignition. And liftoff of Artemis One. The Artemis rocket thundered to life as NASA Administrator Bill Nelson watched from a rooftop with a group of astronauts. I'm telling you, we've never seen such a a tail of flame. Uh, There were a bunch there that would like to be on that rocket. People could fly on the next launch in a couple of years if this first flight goes well. Nelson says NASA has to put the crew capsule through its paces to see how it performs. And we are stressing it and testing it in ways that we will not do to a rocket that has a human crew on it. The capsule will travel over a million miles on a journey that will last more than three weeks. On Monday, it will pass by the moon around 60 miles or so from its surface and then go into a distant orbit. Mike Serafin is NASA's mission manager for the Shakedown cruise. We're just going to work it day by day and we need to uh, work it with vigilance and uh, we are going to do some extraordinarily hard stuff. A key moment will come on December 11, when the capsule re-enters the Earth's atmosphere going Mach 32, over 24,000 miles per hour. Assuming the capsule's heat shield keeps it from burning up, parachutes will deploy as it comes down over the Pacific Ocean, off the coast of San Diego. I personally am not going to rest well until we get 
safely to splash down and recovery. Because NASA has a lot more riding on this flight than just a mannequin. The agency has spent over a decade and billions of dollars developing this capsule and rocket. NASA has vowed to go back to the moon and put the first woman and the first person of color on the lunar surface. It's been almost 50 years since the last Apollo mission there in December of 1972. Nell Greenfield-Boyce, NPR News. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up on All Things Considered, the story of the dying Dead Sea. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by An Unlikely Story Bookstore and Cafe with celebrity and royal biographer Andrew Morton and his new book, The Queen, November 19th, and unlikelystory.com. A downward trend on Wall Street today. The Dow dipped about a tenth of a percent, 39 points, to close at 33,554. S&P lost eight-tenths of a percent to finish at 39.59. The Nasdaq lost more than one-and-a-half percent to finish at 11,184. The venture capital arm of Springfield-based Mass Mutual Life Insurance Company is launching a new $100 million fund. It will invest in early-stage and growth-stage companies in the Climate Technology Center, a sector that is including electric transportation and solar and wind energy. Mass Mutual says the average investment in a company will be between $1 million and $5 million. It's 519. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. Should have partly cloudy skies into the nighttime hours, strong winds, cold ones too in the mid-30s. Skies should clear out by daybreak tomorrow and then should be a sunny and brisk day tomorrow. Highs in the mid-40s, pretty much the same thing for Friday. Sunny and a chilly wind, about 45 degrees tops. In the Boston area now, 47 degrees. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The Dead Sea is ancient. The history of its salty, therapeutic waters goes back to the Bible. But this natural wonder is rapidly drying up, even changing the land around it. NPR's Daniel Estrin took to the water recently to explore what's being lost and what it will take to prevent more destruction. The Dead Sea is magic. It is the lowest exposed place on Earth. It is 10 times saltier than the ocean, so you don't sink in it, you float. The mud and the waters are full of minerals, great therapeutic for your skin, but the Dead Sea is dying. The lake level is dropping four feet every single year. So we've taken this rare boat ride on the Dead Sea to see some of these changes. 
You see a living disaster in front of your eyes, you know, and, and since the sea is receding so fast, you know, you see it. It's not that there's a change that you don't see. No, you see it. Jackie Benzaken has special Israeli permission to give boat tours here. After all, it's a border zone and shared with Jordan. It's hard for aquatic life to exist in the salty waters, hence the name Dead Sea. You see this thing that sticks out there? When you go up, seven years ago, I used to tie my boat, my boat there. Seven years ago? Wow. He's pointing to a spot that's now dry land high above us. It's shocking to see a four-foot drop every single year. The cause is that in the last several decades, the freshwater sources that feed into the Dead Sea have been diverted for drinking water and irrigation. We are living in the Middle East, okay, so there's not a lot of water. Also, Israeli and Jordanian companies pump out and evaporate Dead Sea water to harvest its rich minerals for export. The Salty Sea is receding so quickly, it leaves behind stunning salt pillars along the shores. So it's, it's beautiful, but it actually tells you that there's something not so beautiful happening. Of course, of course. It's, it's not the natural changes. It's a rapid changes that the environment can't adapt to. It's too fast, you know? You get a sense of how an entire landscape can change when a lake is dried up. Cavities along the shore open up into sinkholes. So we're just looking at, it looks like this huge crater that has yeah, just that's collapsed. A that's a sinkhole. We stop at a beach that's been condemned because a sinkhole swallowed up the parking lot. Here are some abandoned beach chairs. Oh, here's a little mini barbecue set. Farmers have also abandoned their watermelon and basil farms along the shores. We will just walk down here. There is a big sinkhole. Dead Sea researcher Yael Kiro from the Weizmann Institute of Science shows me a part of the main road alongside the Dead Sea that collapsed four years ago. Really, really careful and maybe... Um... Wow, wow, wow. Oh my gosh. This road just sinks into itself. It's like the earth has opened up and swallowed it. It breaks my heart. There's just so much destruction. This is just a direct result of the lake level drop. I don't know, it just makes me sad. Climate change makes this worse. The area is getting hotter, rainfall is dropping, populations are growing, and there's not enough water for drinking and irrigation, let alone for saving the Dead Sea. There are many proposals to rehabilitate the Dead Sea, like filling it with desalinated water from the Red Sea, or rehabilitating the Jordan River, the Dead Sea's main water source, or trying to compel the companies mining the Dead Sea to help pay for its rehabilitation. But there's been no action. And this is so sad because the, uh, the solutions is so not uh, easy and very, very expensive now, unfortunately. Galit Cohen is the director general of the Israeli Environmental Protection Ministry. If you want to, uh, to bring back water to the Dead Sea, it means desalination water all around. And this is very, very expensive, of course, and not all the uh, countries around us can uh, pay for that amount of the money. Israel and Jordan are former enemies with chilly relations. They did recently sign a deal where Jordan will give Israel solar energy and Israel will give desalinated drinking water to Jordan, which is parched. But there's still no action plan to save these biblical bodies of water they share, the Dead Sea and the Jordan River. King Abdullah of Jordan spoke about this at the UN climate change conference in Egypt. The Dead Sea and the sacred Jordan River are treasures of the past, and legacies for our future. Our generation must not be 
the broken link. Along the shores, I meet Shay Rabinow of Binghamton University, who's hiking around the Dead Sea and writing a book about it. He just finished hiking the Jordan side. What we've heard is a lot of pessimism, right? People on the Jordanian side have said, our lives have gotten worse. It seems like most people are accepting that the level of this part of the sea may drop another 100 meters, 150 meters in the future. That could take over 100 years. Some researchers are optimistic that as the Dead Sea level drops more and more, an urgency will grow to save it with desalinated water. The question is, how long the natural wonder that's existed for millions of years will keep disappearing four feet a year? Daniel Estrin, NPR News, The Dead Sea. Our next story is about the power of a good beat power that can reach beyond the human species. So, can I get some music, please? All right, if you're already tapping your feet, well... You know, we jokingly say the auditory system of a human is wired to your legs. You can't help when the beat comes in. Yuri Bujaki is a neuroscientist at New York University. This wiring was thought to be so special, and how come it's not present in other species? Why is that not there? And it's not there because we haven't looked carefully until this moment. He's referring to new research from scientists at the University of Tokyo who found that the same tempos that get people going, like the beat of Lady Gaga's Born This Way, appear to get rats moving too. Hirokazu Takahashi led the work. Music has a very special appealing power to the brain. And my motivation is to reveal why. The researchers played the rats' pop songs, like Born This Way, along with a Mozart sonata played back at different speeds. Meanwhile, the scientists tracked the rats' head movements and electrical activity in their brains And they found that rats' brains and bodies seemed to synchronize most to songs in the range of 120 to 140 beats per minute. That's also the range that resonates most with us humans. But Takahashi was careful to say the rats were not necessarily dancing. (laughs) No, no. I'm much more conservative about that. The details are in the journal Science Advances. Ani Ruth Patel of Tufts University was not involved in the work. He says it helps narrow debate about why animals synchronize with certain tempos. Is it body size or something more universal built into our brains? Some animals are much smaller, and so they have faster body rhythms. Like they walk faster and their heartbeat is faster. And so you might think, oh, they're going to like faster rhythms. But this study says, no, that's not how it actually pans out. And that maybe suggests there's some fundamental things about rhythm that are shared between very different species. Takahashi points out that music goes way beyond rhythm, so he will investigate how rats respond to melody and harmony next. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in sports. Celtics are down in Atlanta to take on the Hawks tonight. Patriots running back Ty Montgomery is out for the season. An NFL source tells the Boston Globe Montgomery's had shoulder surgery for an injury he suffered in the Pats' opening game against Miami. It's 5.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the British International School of Boston. Thinking beyond traditional education. Collaborating with MIT and Juilliard. Open house on Sunday. 
register at bisboston.org. And the Provider Group, an insurance brokerage and benefits firm serving high net worth individuals and businesses, working with carriers like Safety Insurance, providerig.com. Republican House leaders have been really soft-pedaling the possibility of this. They don't want to undertake a political impeachment, but there is going to be immense pressure on the right from some of those Freedom Caucus members to start looking into it. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin says the U.S. is waiting for results from Poland's investigation of yesterday's explosion in eastern Poland. It killed two people. We have full confidence in the Polish government's investigation of this, of this explosion, and they've been conducting that investigation in a professional and deliberate manner. And so we won't get ahead of their work. However, NATO officials suggest this was caused by a misfired Ukrainian air defense missile. NATO officials say despite the cause, the blame still lies with Russia. Legislation that legalizes same-sex and interracial marriage has passed a procedural hurdle in the Senate. A final vote could come this week. The bill arose after the Supreme Court overturned its decision in Roe v. Wade. Justice Clarence Thomas wrote then the court could also revisit the subject of same-sex marriage. The University of Virginia student charged with fatally shooting three university football players is being held without bond in the Charlottesville area. From member station VPM, Whitney Evans reports Christopher Jones Jr. has been arraigned. Jones, a former UVA football player, faces multiple charges, including second-degree murder and malicious wounding. He's accused of killing and injuring five students who were on a charter bus that had just returned to Charlottesville from a field trip. Prosecutor James Hingley revealed during the hearing that a witness said Jones was targeting passengers and was not, quote, shooting randomly. Hingley, who is a former public defense attorney, says this could be one of the hardest cases of his career. So I know about challenging cases. I know about cases that carry the highest stakes. This is one of those cases. Jones will go before a judge for a second hearing scheduled in early December. For NPR News, I'm Whitney Evans in Charlottesville. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. We should find out tomorrow if the MBTA's Green Line extension will be open this month. A spokesman for the T says General Manager Steve Poftak will update the T's board tomorrow on the project. The Green Line extension will bring trolley service into Medford. The completion date was initially set to be last December. The most recent plan calls for the extension to open up this month. Berkeley College of Music's Indian Ensemble has been nominated for a Grammy Award. The group has earned global attention for its experimental sound with Indian roots. WBR's Rob Lane has more. The Berkeley Indian Ensemble has racked up millions of views on YouTube with songs like this one called Gia Jale. Ensemble director Annette Phillips says the group's longtime dream was to put out an album. It finally did earlier this year with the release of Shuruat, Hindi for beginning. The other dream was, what if we won a Grammy? So why not submit? And, you know, this is just the power of dreams. Shuruat is nominated in the category of Best Global Music Album. The Grammys will be on February 5th in Los Angeles. 
For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rob Lane. Other local Grammy nominees include Stoughton native Lori McKenna, who is nominated as a songwriter on the Taylor Swift song, I Bet You Think About Me. And Newton native Eva O'Donovan is nominated for three awards, including Best Folk Album. The city of Cambridge is looking to hire someone to help handle its growing rat population. WBR's Josie Guarino spoke with one city councillor who thinks it's time the city use every weapon in its arsenal. I see him at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, you know, on my street, you know, and, and it's just like, you know, they kind of look at you like, yeah, what are you going to do? City Councilor Mark McGovern says the city is going to add five times as many smart boxes around Cambridge to trap and electrocute rats. Plus, hand out more rat-resistant trash bins and consider using a special rat birth control deployed in bait boxes. Because rats reproduce so quickly, so there are some cities that have been piloting birth control. McGovern says city leaders need to investigate the birth control approach a little more. In the meantime, the city will post a job opening in December for a rat liaison who will run an online dashboard to let residents see how the fight against infestation is going. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Josie Guarino. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley helping college students get back on track through academics, executive functioning coaching, and yoga. Semesteroff.com. Celtics are down in Atlanta to take on the Hawks tonight. Boston's looking for its eighth straight win, but the team will be without Marcus Smart and Malcolm Brogdon because of injuries. Forecast partly cloudy overnight. Temperatures drop again to the mid-30s with some winds kicking up. Tomorrow, lots of sunshine still windy. Highs in the mid-40s. Sunshine should reappear on Friday back up in the mid-40s. 45 degrees now in Boston at 536. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Amazon Business, from small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at nervivehealth.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. When you start drawing a map of where people move because of climate change, the arrows can go in a lot of different directions. Take Senegal. For the last several days, we've been telling stories of Senegalese people who are leaving their home country because of climate change. But unpredictable weather patterns across Africa are also sending people to Senegal. I cannot give an an exact number of people, but uh, I can say it's increasing. It's a sweltering hot day, and Usman Jop is leading us through a field of lettuce, or as they call it here... What do you call salad? Salad, English, yeah. yeah. Salad, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Jop works with the International Organization for Migration, or IOM. They help people from all over West Africa who arrive in Senegal. Many come here just outside of Dakar to a city called Rafisk to labor in the fields, planting seeds and harvesting vegetables. So some of them come from Gambia, from Mali, some Senegalese from the inland. From the inland. Senegalese people are also migrating internally to places like this where farms are more productive. A cement factory looms over us. Trucks rumble by on a road that cuts right through the fields, a reminder of how quickly the outskirts of Dakar are crowding in on these farms. So we're arriving under a great big fiddle-leaf fig tree, and in the shade there are large tires that people are sitting on. 
chairs and um, little stools made out of small branches. About a dozen men take shelter from the heat. <laughs> At the foot of the tree, there's a hut with walls of corrugated metal. The men outside laughing give us permission to enter. We have authorization. We have authorization. It has a simple sleeping pallet inside. There are bags hanging from hooks on the wall. It's cozy and dark. It's very cool, yeah, yeah. The men sleep here sometimes so they can water the fields at night when it won't evaporate as quickly. Today, a sprinkler is doing some of the work for them. Swarms of dragonflies hover over the neat green rows of lettuce. None of the men in this small group are from Senegal. All of them grew up working the fields in their home countries, but those farms are no longer producing like they used to. Rains are unpredictable. Crops don't grow. Here in Senegal, the way they grow all this food, if you could have that in the neighboring countries, young people wouldn't go abroad. Fode Balde is 30. He grew up on a farm in the Gambia. The rainy season was really bad in the last few years. Do you mean the rains did not come or there was too much? What happened? I notice a big difference between before and nowadays. Nowadays, the rain is really rare. Does Senegal feel like home now? Yeah, it really does. So you think you will stay here? Yeah, we all talk about this. We have hope. Sitting next to him, Sadio Conte is from Mali. He wears a black baseball cap that says Dior. He speaks in Bambara, which we translate into Wolof, then to English. He says the deserts in Mali are advancing. It's so much hotter where he's from in Mali, he says, which makes farming difficult. And he thanks God that he found work here. The changes that these men observe are consistent with what scientists have predicted would happen in Africa as the earth heats up. Most of the migration in Africa looks like this. According to the UN, 80% of migrants stay on the continent instead of going on to Europe. And these men immigrated here legally. They have freedom to move across borders within West Africa in the same way citizens of the European Union can cross EU borders freely. Farmers and herders have always migrated following weather patterns. But walking through the lettuce fields, Usman Jop of the IOM tells me things are different now. 70% of people here in Africa, in West Africa, do the agriculture. And agriculture depends integrally in, in, in climate conditions. So that's why uh, with the impact of climate change, migration is, uh, is a, a coping strategy. A coping strategy. Faced with dramatic changes in weather, people are coming up with their own solutions to support their families without crossing oceans, without risking their lives to reach countries that colonized them in the past. The Muslim call to prayer rings out from a mosque behind us. Some of the farm workers roll out prayer rugs and kneel. Seydou Balde is 29. He came here in 2015, also from the Gambia. Growing up, he knew exactly how to grow vegetables like the lettuce that he plants here, but now? You know, sometimes the rainy season, we experience a lot of problems. Here's one of those problems. At the beginning of the rainy season, you plant seeds which germinate. But those seeds need more rain. So if there's an unexpected dry patch? Those seeds just germinated, 
they will end up dying. So you have to plant an entirely you new crop. You have to replant again while the season is going on. And the rainy season is short, just three months. So losing time can be devastating. Example, if it's supposed to wait 10 kilos, it will be wet in five kilos instead of ten. So you're getting half the harvest that you usually get. It will be very light because the production will be very poor. It will be very bad. He would grow peanuts, corn, millet. Eventually bringing in half as much harvest as he used to, he couldn't keep up. So he left. And when he visits home, he tells other young men that they should leave too. I tell them, if there is no work, you need to move out. Because like, if you don't work, you'll end up stealing. Because right now, if you are caught stealing and you are jailed for two years, that's a waste of time. Does it make you sad to not be in your home country? Actually, there's no place like home. No matter what I feel to be home. There's no place like home. These men wish they didn't have to find a new home. But for now, the lettuce is growing and it needs to be picked. The midday break is over and it's time for these men from all over West Africa to return to their fields in Senegal. Although this kind of regional migration within Africa is much more common, longer journeys to Europe are more dangerous, more politically provocative, and they get more attention. That's why Europe is fortifying its borders with Africa. On the northern edge of the African continent are two Spanish cities, surrounded by fences, guarded by men with guns. People have died trying to jump those barriers. As our reporting continues this week, we'll visit that land border where Africa meets Europe. Melilla se ha bunkerizado. Melilla today is like a bunker. Es una sensación de isla. It's like living in an island. Melilla is, de algún modo, una puerta a Europa. Melilla is somehow a gate into Europe. All Things Considered is a production of NPR News which is solely responsible for its content. Like a story you heard on this or another NPR program? Share it with a friend at npr.org. While there, you can also hear stories you missed, enjoy expanded content, or connect to your favorite member station. This is NPR. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Russia's invasion of Ukraine is raising the profile of Ukrainian scientists and activists at the International Climate Conference in Egypt. U.S. Climate Envoy John Kerry, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, and actress Elle Fanning have all visited the country's pavilion at COP27. NPR's Nathan Rott reports from Sharm el Sheikh on how Ukraine is trying to use the stage. Ukraine's pavilion, its first at a UN climate meeting, sits in a cavernous conference room set up in the desert. While other countries celebrate their decarbonization efforts, their culture, their coffee, Ukraine displays dirt polluted by Russian missile strikes, a section of an oak tree torn by bullets, and a cost of the environmental damages of Russia's war. Today, the amount of damage is at least 37 billion euros. Ruslan Strelets is Ukraine's environment minister. 
And while the whole world today is discussing reduction of greenhouse gas emission, we in Ukraine are forced to once again discuss the fight against pollution. Emission on the territory of Ukraine in 2022 exceed the amount of emission in 2021 by 23 times. Ukraine's Environment Ministry has been tracking those emissions and environmental damages, part of a broader effort to hold Russia accountable for the costs being incurred. And it's trying to communicate that to anyone at this conference who will listen. It's really heartbreaking to see all the way that war destroys lives, including through environmental destruction. Aditi Varshneya is a climate activist from New York. And, you know, it, it's really important that they're calling attention here at the Ukraine Pavilion to that connection between war and environmental degradation and climate change. It's a connection that Ukraine's lead climate scientist, Svetlana Krakowska, has been making since the start of the invasion. Last February, in the days after Russia invaded her home country, Krakowska gave a presentation for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. She's one of its authors. And she had a clear message. That I see this connection between uh, uh, fossil fuels and cause of climate change and the funding of the war and invasion of Russian war on Ukraine. That fossil fuels which are causing climate change are also Russia's chief export and funding its invasion of her country. The message resonated. Not only with activists or scientists, but with politicians. Oops. She's interrupted by a marching group of activists from the Democratic Republic of Congo. DRC! DRC! Say let's go green! DRC! Krakowska watches them go by and quietly shakes her head. Yeah, it's a lot of fun here, but uh, well, actually, I, I, I understand that, uh, you know, it's fun for many people, but it's not so much fun for Ukrainians, to be honest. Yeah. yeah. I mean, how has it been being here and seeing all these people from all over the world? Uh, I feel not very good, to be honest. So I feel not, I cannot relax. And uh, as, uh, as far as I know, many of our Ukrainians here. So it's very beautiful uh, surroundings. Uh, but we, you know, we are too much deep in the situation in Ukraine. Krakowska's family is still in Kyiv, living without power. But she's here, she says, because climate change is a bigger threat, not just to Ukraine, but to everyone. Nathan Rout, NPR News, Sharm El Sheikh. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, remembering the centenarian whose video went viral after a dance with President Obama. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Tapas 529 in Melrose for sharing and sampling Spanish and Mediterranean taste sensations. Reserving now for private holiday parties, tapas529.com. Coming to City Space Monday, December 12th, New York Times parenting columnist Jessica Gross talks about her new book, Screaming on the Inside. Tickets are at wbur.org events. In the forecast, we should have clouds over the next several hours, partly cloudy skies overnight tonight. Gusty winds should fall to about 36 degrees. Tomorrow and Friday should only make it to about 46 degrees, with sunny skies both days still on the windy side. Looks as if we should be stuck in the 40s over the weekend. 
Patriots running back Ty Montgomery appears to be out for the season. An NFL source tells the Boston Globe Montgomery has had shoulder surgery for an injury he suffered in the Pats' opening game in Miami. It's 549. WBUR supporters include Goddard House Assisted Living in Brookline, embracing the aging experience for seniors in the Boston area. Learn more about their innovative programs at goddardhouse.org. Dr. Linda Vidon. Vice President of Clinical Management for Delta Dental of Massachusetts, a WBUR underwriter. We're pleased to underwrite WBUR as an effective way to increase awareness of the importance of oral health. Your oral health is a key predictor of overall health with direct links to diabetes, heart disease, mental health, and more. We believe that you can express your health through better oral health. For more information, visit expressyourhealthma.org. It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. The 2022 Men's Soccer World Cup kicks off on Sunday in Qatar. For years in the run-up to this tournament, the small Gulf nation has been under intense international scrutiny for its troubling human rights record. Thousands of migrant workers reportedly died during construction of World Cup infrastructure. Human rights groups say workers were often forced to work under unsafe conditions, including in extreme heat. They also point to the fact that homosexuality is illegal in Qatar and warn that visiting LGBTQ fans and players could face legal trouble in the country. Qatari officials say everyone will be welcome at the World Cup and that they have enacted labor reforms in recent years to improve conditions for migrant workers. Minky Warden is director of global initiatives at Human Rights Watch, and I asked her what groups like hers would like to see at this point from Qatar and FIFA, soccer's governing body. What dozens of human rights groups are seeking is what we call a remedy fund. And this would be a fund set up by FIFA and the Qatari government to compensate families of migrant workers. These workers, many of them lost their lives delivering the World Cup. Mm -hmm. And under the UN guiding principles on business and human rights, FIFA is required to compensate those families. So if a worker died delivering infrastructure or a stadium for the World Cup, FIFA and Qatar have a responsibility to make it right to that family. And how much responsibility has FIFA taken in this run-up to the World Cup to press the Qatari government on human rights issues? In your mind, how much responsibility have they claimed? FIFA has a what they would call a partnership model. And that partnership model means that when Russia is your partner, the World Cup goes to Russia and the World Cup is used by Putin to burnish his reputation on the world stage and to set the stage for future aggression. In the case of Qatar, Qatar is using the World Cup to build soft power for itself in the region and in the world. Um, That means that FIFA had a lot of leverage with its partner. Mm -hmm. And Human Rights Watch has been pressuring FIFA for many years to put in place protections for journalists, for women, for LGBT people, for fans, for players, and most of all, for the two million migrant workers or more who were building World Cup infrastructure. So FIFA had all of the leverage, but ahead of the World Cup has not delivered on its responsibility to pay the families of workers who have died building infrastructure. As you mentioned, a previous Men's World Cup took place in Russia. That was back in 2018. Russia being another country with a very problematic human rights record. Let me ask you, what message does it send when 
a huge lucrative tournament like the World Cup, takes place repeatedly in countries where human rights seem to be trampled. Well, there's a word for that. We call it sports washing. It's really being picked up by governments like China, Russia, Qatar, and Saudi Arabia, who are prepared to spend billions of dollars to burnish their reputation on the world stage by hosting beloved sporting events. I I think all of your listeners may have, may remember sitting around with families and cheering for their favorite World Cup teams. It's really governments with very repressive human rights policies, almost weaponizing your love for football or your love for soccer or your love for the Olympics. And it's a, a very dangerous global trend. Well, as the World Cup gets underway in Qatar this month, what will Human Rights Watch be looking for specifically? Will FIFA and Qatar set up a multi-million dollar fund to compensate the families of workers who died to deliver their World Cup? Without that happening before the first ball is kicked, there really can be no celebration. And I think for the future, Players and fans should never again be forced to choose between the game they love and supporting human rights. Players are already making videos and wearing uniforms that have the words human rights emblazoned across their chests. I think it's a very important statement that players are standing with the workers who built the stadiums where they will play. And maybe that is the best way forward for sport. It is that it no longer assigns its most important events based solely on who puts the most money on the table. That was Minky Warden. She's the director of global initiatives at Human Rights Watch. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. When the late Virginia McLaurin was 105 years old, she made a wish. My name is Virginia McLaurin. I was born 1909 in Chilaw, South Carolina. I would love to meet the president because I didn't think I'd ever live to see a colored president. She was born to black sharecroppers in the Jim Crow South, and the presidency of Barack Obama meant a lot to her. In early 2016, she got her wish and made her way to the White House. Love it. In the video of her encounter with the Obamas, she could hardly contain her excitement. Just dancing? Come on. Oh so what's the, what's the secret to, to, the to still dancing at 106? That viral moment brought McLaurin something that she had never experienced in her first century of life. Fame. After you know her visit to the White House, she really couldn't go anywhere that people didn't recognize her and would want to get their picture taken. That's Deborah Menkart, a longtime friend and former neighbor of McLaurin. She says after McLaurin retired, she volunteered in the schools of Washington, D.C., where she had lived since about 1939. Miss Virginia is known for her volunteer work, but she was also outspoken about any injustices that she saw, and I think that also contributes to her long life and her her exuberance is that she didn't hold back. McLaurin redirected her newfound attention to advocacy. Deborah Menkart says that voting was an especially important issue to her. She was very committed to, to voting. She 
noted that she had not always been allowed to vote as an African-American and that the moment she could exercise that right, she would, and she encouraged everyone else to. Having grown up with segregation and discrimination, she told NPR's Here and Now that the election of President Obama was especially meaningful. I didn't think I would ever live to see a black president. I didn't think I would ever live to get into the White House. Virginia McLaurin died last Monday. Though she did not have a birth certificate, by her own accounting, she was 113 years old. On Twitter, Barack and Michelle Obama wrote, Rest in peace, Virginia. We know you're up there dancing. Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part time controller specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Procter and Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bentley University's Executive Ph.D. in Business, a part-time doctoral program for professionals who want data-driven research skills to solve today's business challenges. I'm WBUR City Space Director Amy McDonald, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. New government data and reports from some of the biggest retailers in the country show Americans are still shopping but prioritizing what they really need. With the cost of everyday items still stubbornly high in too many categories, more customers and members are choosing us for the value. It's Wednesday, November 16th, and this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. That story coming up. Also ahead, Brazil's president-elect says his country is back in the environmental protection game. He made the announcement at this year's UN climate conference, which he wants to come to the Amazon in 2025. The Murdoch media empire is deciding how to treat former President Trump after an uneasy alliance that lasted years. And owls in the Pacific Northwest have been showing more territorial and sometimes even aggressive behavior. We hear what's behind it. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The U.S. says it has complete confidence in Poland's investigation into an explosion that killed two people near the border with Ukraine Monday, 
Polish officials have said it was likely the result of Ukrainian air defense missiles. NPR's Michelle Kalman reports. The U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Linda Thomas-Greenfield, is praising Poland for its, quote, calm, careful, and measured response. While we still don't know all the facts, we do know one thing. This tragedy would never have happened but for Russia's needless invasion of Ukraine and its recent missile assaults. Russia has been bombarding Ukraine's energy infrastructure. A top U.N. official, Rosemary DiCarlo, says such attacks are prohibited under international law and warns that the incident in Poland was, in her words, a frightening reminder of the absolute need to prevent an escalation. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Washington. Kentucky Senator Mitch McConnell has survived a challenge from Florida Senator Rick Scott to be reelected as Republican leader. Scott, the Senate GOP campaign chief, to challenge McConnell for the minority leader's post. McConnell re-elected by a vote of 37 to 10. Scott's challenge came amid ongoing fallout from the midterm elections where Republicans failed to take the Senate majority and did far worse in terms of gaining additional House seats than many had expected. Democrats are pushing for legislation during the lame duck session to protect immigrants who are brought into the U.S. illegally as children. NPR's Claudio Grisales reports Democrats face an uphill battle in getting support from Republicans. Recipients of the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program joined Senate Democrats outside the Capitol pushing for new protections. We are the dreamers. Mighty, mighty dreamers. Mighty, mighty dreamers. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer urged Republicans to join them. It's past time DACA recipients feel safe in this country. So my message to Senate Republicans is this, work with us, work with us on this widely supported policy so we can reach agreement that will protect families and strengthen our economy. But Senate Democrats are still short of the Republican votes needed to overcome the threat of a filibuster. Claudia Grisales, NPR News, Washington. Quarterback Tom Brady, his supermodel ex-wife Giselle Bundchen, and comedian Larry David, just some of the celebrities, caught up in the collapse of cryptocurrency exchange FTX. A class action lawsuit filed in federal court contends a host of athletes and celebrities appeared in ads for the exchange that were full of, quote, misrepresentations and omissions and should be liable for losses. FTX filed for bankruptcy and could reportedly have as many as a million creditors. On Wall Street today, stocks moved lower. The Dow was down 39 points. The Nasdaq fell 174 points today. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts transportation officials are warning there may be large traffic jams next week as people hit the road for the Thanksgiving holiday. To ease the traffic problems, officials announced today that construction will be halted on state highways and additional police and road crews will be out on patrol. WBUR's Simone Rios has more. MassDOT Secretary Jamie Tesler says traffic before and after Thanksgiving could be worse than before the pandemic began. We strongly encourage members of the public to plan ahead and be informed by checking current travel conditions, traveling during off-peak hours, and please consider taking public transportation. The lightest travel day next week will be Thanksgiving itself, so people driving to and from their holiday destinations on Thursday could face the least amount of traffic. No matter when you drive, officials are reminding people to wear seatbelts. They say 2021 had the greatest number of road fatalities in 14 years. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. 
Doctor groups across Massachusetts say the respiratory virus known as RSV is stretching the capacity of emergency departments and hospitals throughout the state. The majority of cases are in children. The Massachusetts Medical Society is among the groups to issue a statement today that recommends ways to prevent RSV heading into the holidays. They say it's critical to vaccinate all kids over six months old against the flu and COVID. They also recommend frequent hand washing. And doctors say if a child does get sick, keep them home until they've been fever-free for at least 24 hours. A dozen Boston schools will receive a total of $2 million in grants over the next three years. The Boston Schools Fund announced the donation today. That group advocates for educational equity in the city. The first round of grants will provide the schools with technical assistance and coaching from experts. The goal is to improve metrics such as state testing results. In the forecast, partly cloudy skies to start the night, some strong winds and cold ones in the mid-30s. Skies should clear by daybreak, then tomorrow bright and brisk. Lots of sunshine, highs in the mid-40s. Pretty much the same thing for Friday. Sunny and a chilly wind, about 45 degrees tops. It is 45 degrees now in Boston at 6.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the William T. Grant Foundation, working to harness the power of research to make a difference in the lives of children, teens, and young adults for more than 80 years. Learn more at wtgrantfdn.org. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Our spending habits say a lot about the state of the U.S. economy. And today, we have some new clues about where the economy has been and where it's headed. And people, this actually includes some positive news. NPR's Alina Seljuk is here to give us the update. Hey, Alina. Hello, hello. Hello, hello. Okay, so what is the top headline here? So big picture, we are still shopping a lot. Uh, The Mm -hmm. Commerce Department says retail spending in October rose 1.3% from September and 8.3% compared to last year. You know, for months we have been saying that any increase in spending has been because of higher prices. We're spending more to buy less. But this report is slightly more optimistic than that. It's the biggest jump in retail sales since February. But people are definitely prioritizing necessities, groceries and gas, where inflation is high. This has meant big gains for Walmart. It's the biggest grocery seller in the U.S. Here's CEO Doug McMillan. Customers that came to us less frequently in the past are now shopping with us more often, including higher income customers. And Walmart is really using food to draw customers. They're promising, for example, to keep the prices of the Thanksgiving meal the same as last year. Mm, Okay, so people are still spending on food. But I guess, does that mean they're cutting back on stuff that's not quite as necessary? Are we seeing that? Yes. So spending at restaurants and bars saw one of the biggest increases for October. That's your food and drink. At stores, a few categories are just not selling well. That's electronics, clothes, sporting goods, furniture. All this really hurt Target. It doesn't have the same grocery draw as Walmart. Target reported a slowdown in sales. Here's CEO Brian Cornell. Consumers are feeling increasing levels of stress driven by persistently high inflation, rapidly rising interest rates, and an elevated sense of uncertainty about their economic prospects. A few ways Target saw this was, you know, shoppers really hunting for sales and discounts, 
choosing smaller package sizes or switching from name brands to store brands. We just heard the mention of rapidly rising interest rates. I mean, they're a piece of this overall picture, right? What can you tell us about how people are responding to interest rates? Actually, we got something on this uh, from Home Depot and Lowe's. Might be counterintuitive, but higher interest rates seem to be prompting some home renovations. Both home improvement stores reported higher sales. Of course, rising prices played a role, but also it's a bad time to be buying a home, so people seem to be fixing up homes they already have. Huh. Okay, so what does all of this tell us, Alina, about the kind of shape that family finances are in as we all head into the holiday season with gift shopping coming up? You say head into, I think we're solidly in it. I (laughs) feel like I was shopping for holiday sales like before I finished my Halloween candy. (laughs) Anyways, um, overall, the National Retail Federation is forecasting a pretty strong holiday spending um, rate uh, growing faster than average with inflation definitely part of it. We know people are increasingly dipping into whatever maybe they saved up during the pandemic or from getting a raise this year or charging their credit cards. And actually, speaking of credit cards, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York said this week that credit card balances recently saw the biggest jump in more than 20 years. They climbed 15 percent in late summer, early um, late summer, early fall. Wow. That is NPR's Alina Selyuk. Thank you, Alina. Thank you. If you want to know how climate change is affecting the world today, you could ask scientists who track weather patterns, or you could ask humanitarian relief workers who are trying to help people facing drought and starvation. In East Africa, years of failed rainy seasons have created a humanitarian crisis. Earlier this week, we heard about the situation in Somalia. Today, we're joined by David Miliband of the International Rescue Committee, who has just returned from a trip to Ethiopia. Good to talk to you again. Good to be with you, Ari. Tell us what you saw on your visit to Ethiopia. Yeah, I traveled to the eastern part of Ethiopia. It borders with the country of Somalia, with Kenya and Somalia. It makes up the three countries of East Africa. And what you see there is unmistakable evidence of the price of the climate crisis being paid today by some of the poorest people in the world. I mean, this is a country that doesn't just have a history of poverty. It's got a history of conflict. And when you meet internally displaced people from five or seven years ago and you hear from them that resources and stress on resources were one of the reasons for the conflict, when you meet farmers who tell you that their family herd of 40 cattle is down to just one, which Mm. I saw and heard about, when you look out of the window of your car and when you stop and look at the sorghum uh, plants, you see they're yellow at the bottom and you see there isn't proper nutrition in the flowers at the top, you can see that this is not just a a one-off, this is fundamental change in the climate facing vulnerable communities around the world. So it was an appropriate visit last week for the first week of the UN conference this week. It's meant to be discussing how to mitigate the impact of climate change. The message is you've got to adapt to climate change that's already happening as well as mitigate further change down the road. I want to ask you about the climate conference, but before we leave the scene in Ethiopia, um, can you tell us about somebody you met who who you vividly remember? Yes, I mean, we, the International Rescue Committee, we run water projects around the country. And for every project, there is a, a steering committee elected of the local community. I talked to a woman in her early 30s, and I said to her, look, one year, two years drought, 
that doesn't make a climate crisis. Tell me how the climate or whether the climate has changed in your lifetime. And she said to me, just think about Lake Haramea. This was a source of fish and therefore nutrition, but also employment 30 years ago when she was born. Now it hardly exists. And the image of that woman adapting to climate change, the climate crisis in her own community, trying to adapt, trying to work to sustain her family, that, that really sticks with me. This conversation, of course, is happening during the UN Climate Summit in Egypt. And the nature of climate change is that this situation is only going to get worse. The world is only going to get hotter. And so what is the long-term solution? Well, I think that the long-term solution is obviously to get off the addiction to fossil fuels. Uh, we know why climate change is happening. We know the risks that we're taking. And don't be fooled by the statistic of, an, uh, of the danger of a 1.5 degrees average rise in global temperatures. That average rise is associated with more extreme weather events. The tragedy is that because of 20 years of inaction, we're now in a situation where we don't just have to mitigate future climate change, we have to adapt to existing climate change. And the richer countries of the world have to lead on both fronts. The good news is that on mitigation, on preventing future climate change, the European Union, China and America now have legislative commitments that are pretty ambitious. There's still some spoilers, Russia, Saudi Arabia not made commitments, but the three biggest emitters, EU, US and China, have made uh, commitments. You're a former British Foreign Secretary. You've attended these summits before. How effective do you think these gatherings are for making real substantive change that impacts the lives of the people most affected by climate change? Well, they're not very effective, but they're all we've got. We're living in a fragmented political world where risks are increasingly global, but resilience is increasingly country-specific. That's why we're in a mess. And there are all sorts of problems with the UN uh, process, but we've got to make it work. And I was encouraged to listen to Secretary Kerry, former Secretary Kerry, now Climate Envoy Kerry, who highlighted 20 countries in the world are responsible for 80% of the emissions. Those are countries that have to lead, and that's not yet happening, but that has to happen within the UN process. Uh, obviously, there are 190 countries in the world. They all have a veto on the final declaration, but those 20 countries have no excuses, and they need to get on with it. David Miliband is head of the International Rescue Committee. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Turns out more people are reporting confrontations between humans and owls in Washington and Oregon. Yes, you heard that right. Confrontations between humans and owls. NPR's Jacqueline Diaz looked into this. Kirsten Matheson was walking alone in the woods by her home in Hansville, Washington, when she was attacked. I was walking on my driveway and something you know, swiped my head, then I uh, ducked and uh, looked up in this owl that I had have seen before over the last couple of years. This particular owl is white with gray feathers, a sharp beak, and sharper talons. She waited a few minutes and walked back to head home. The owl wasn't having it. It flew back around and it got me in the back of the oh, head. <laughs> was There was a lot of screaming. She said it was like being punched by someone with rings on. To avoid the owl's wrath, Matheson ceded one part of her property to the owl for a week before walking even close to the bird's territory. But then, a week later, the owl attacked again. And that time it got me behind the ear. That one was worse. There was more deeper cuts. 
She had seen this owl before and never had any issues like this. What was going on? It turns out that barred owls have been blamed for several similar attacks in the Pacific Northwest. At least one park in SeaTac, Washington, warned visitors of the area's aggressive owl that attacked several people. I've been told that I must have, it's a bad omen, that I just should be on the lookout for uh, something else to happen. The reality is slightly less interesting, according to wildlife biologist Jonathan Slott. He works with the Wildlife Conservation Society. They're aggressive owls, and they're highly territorial. Barred owls like to nest in the cavities of trees. Like any reduction in available habitat for breeding would put them in closer proximity to, to humans. So what does that mean for Matheson in the short term? It's not like forever for her life she's doomed. <laughs> With humans, it's certainly not mm. predatory behavior, but it's certainly a, a territorial aggression. Jacqueline Diaz on the Owl Beat, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. A downward trend on Wall Street today. The Dow dipped a tenth of a percent, 39 points, to close at 33,554. S&P lost eight-tenths of a percent to finish the day at 39.59. The Nasdaq lost more than one and a half percent to finish at 11,184. JetBlue is going to begin to fly nonstop from Boston to Paris next year. The airline said today it'll be JetBlue's second transatlantic route from Logan. Service from Boston to London began in August. JetBlue will begin flying from New York to Paris next summer before it adds the flights from Boston. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an educational and wellness program in Wellesley helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive function coaching, yoga, and exercise are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Spring semester starts January 23rd. Semesteroff.com. In sports, Patriots running back Ty Montgomery is out for the season. An NFL source tells the Boston Globe Montgomery has had shoulder surgery for an injury that he suffered in the Pats' opening game against Miami. Celtics are down in Atlanta to take on the Hawks tonight. Boston's looking for its eighth straight win. The Bruins are off until tomorrow. And former Red Sox skipper Terry Francona has won his third title as Manager of the Year. He was named the American League Manager of the Year by the Baseball Writers Association. Each time he's won the award, he did it as a leader of the Cleveland Guardians. Francona led the Red Sox to a pair of World Series titles, including their first in 86 years in 2004. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. Partly cloudy skies overnight tonight. Gusty winds around. Temperatures about 36. Tomorrow and Friday only making it to about 46 degrees. Sunshine both days still on the windy side. It's 620. Hi, it's Robin Young. As you give your year-end contributions to organizations that make the world a better place, how about putting WBUR on your list? Give a gift of cash or stock or a contribution from your donor-advised fund. Even your old car can help fuel the journalism that keeps us all moving forward. Learn about all the ways to support WBUR and choose the one that's right for you, please, at WBUR.org.
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. The headline on the bottom of the New York Post's front page today reads simply, Florida Man Makes Announcement, page 26. That was about former President Donald Trump launching his latest bid for the White House. The Wall Street Journal's editorial board called him the Republican Party's biggest loser. Even Fox News is cooling on Trump. Murdoch-owned media companies had been among Trump's biggest boosters. And now NPR media correspondent David Folkenflik is looking into whether they are bailing on him. David, tell us more about how Murdoch outlets are covering this announcement. Well, so much is pegged, as you suggest, to the uh, unrealized red wave of last Tuesday's elections. It simply didn't materialize, and a lot of folks are putting that at Trump's doorstep, given how many of the major candidates he endorsed uh, flailed uh, at the polls. Um, You've seen the New York Post really deriding him and at the same time denying him oxygen. That page 26 story was short. It was brief. It sort of made fun of the lack of knowledge about his cholesterol levels, you know, did not take him seriously as a consequential political figure. The Wall Street Journal, as you note, you know, essentially said it's time for him to get out of the business of this so Republicans can regroup and prove themselves. And let me give you a flavor of the ambivalence on Fox News, you know, and Fox Business, really the homes of his strongest support. This clip I want to play from you is from Fox Business Network's Stuart Varney, a longtime Trump champion. He's asking a question here of a Fox News contributor whose name is Laura Trump, that is the wife of Eric Trump. Here's what Varney asked. You were there, so I'm sure you're very supportive of of, of your (laughs) father-in-law, but those of us on the outside looking at it, it didn't seem as he got the old magic. Even stars uh, like Laura Ingram and Tucker Carlson have suggested Trump would be a mixed bag for the Republican Party. They've been pretty full-throated defenders and supporters until now. How is this different from the way Murdoch-owned media outlets responded to other tough times for Trump, from the impeachments to the insurrection? Well, look, we have seen this before. It's worth noting the Murdoch swung away during the hearings of the January 6th committee earlier this year. But then they snapped back into line when Trump supporters were outraged by the FBI search of Mar-a-Lago for classified documents held by Trump. Why? Well, those Trump supporters make up Fox's core audience. That's how Fox dominated in the era of streaming and in the emergence of these new right-wing outfits like Newsmax and OANN. Even so, this represents a significant shift. The, the Murdoch uh, support, particularly through Trump, has been real. Trump noticed. He's been trashing the Murdochs of late. And I think that there's sign of a, of a potential real rift. So is the conclusion here that backing losing candidates is, in Murdoch world, a greater offense than trying to overturn democracy? I think the Murdochs got a lot of what they wanted out of Trump. Those uh, very conservative uh, justices appointed the Supreme Court, uh, huge uh, tax uh, cuts for for the wealthy. And it's a moment of weakness for Trump. Uh, Lachlan and Rupert Murdoch have signaled they want to move on. Somebody uh, who I spoke to who has talked to Lachlan says that right now, you know, Fox News can cover the news as it's happened, both in opinion and in uh, uh, on the news side. And they won't be tying themselves into pretzels to try to make things look good for Murdoch. You know, I think it's a moment of weakness and they want to see they can take advantage of it to find a new face for the Republican Party. How are we going to know whether this time the split is real and not just temporary? 
I'm something of a skeptic on this. It's like Lucy with the football again and again with Charlie Brown. I will say when the campaign starts to pick up, if they give running room and license to major Republican figures, particularly those on Capitol Hill, to criticize Trump without being beaten down and suffering a real backlash from Fox stars, that'll tell you something. But if Trump's followers rebel, I think the Murdochs will probably sprint to the head of the Trump parade and make it look like they were leading all along. That's NPR media correspondent David Fulkenflick. Thank you. You bet. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Brazil is back. That is, back in the environmental protection game. That was the message from Brazil's president-elect today at the UN Climate Conference in Egypt. Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva talked about his plans to protect the Amazon rainforest after years of record-breaking deforestation. And he even said that he wants to bring a future climate conference to the Amazon. But the newly elected leftist leader faces a lot of challenges to his zero-tolerance promise. And to talk more about that, we're joined now by NPR's South America correspondent, Carrie Kahn, who is in Rio de Janeiro. Hey, Carrie. Hi. Hi. Okay, so Lula da Silva just won the election. Like, he hasn't even taken office yet. How come he went to the climate change conference instead of the current president of Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro? The president, Jair Bolsonaro, is a far-right politician who questions climate change, and he has been quite hostile to multilateral approaches to it. Deforestation under an under his administration in the Amazon has hit record highs also. Uh, Lula was received there like a rock star today <laughs> at the conference. Um, he played right into it too. Que o Brasil está de volta. Está de volta. He said to great applause, uh, Brazil is back, back in being a leader in environmental protection. And he went on listing a lot of ways that Brazil will take on climate change and that preserving the Amazon will be a top priority of his new government. Uh, the majority of the Amazon rainforest sits in Brazil's territory. Uh, Lula has just won a very contentious election against Bolsonaro here. It, Bolsonaro was in power for the last four years and dismantled a lot of enforcement and protections in the Amazon illegal logging, illegal fishing, illegal farming, rose to 15-year highs here. And Lula has vowed to reverse that. And he promised in this speech, and he did in his campaign, zero deforestation by 2030. Zero deforestation? That's a really bright line. I mean, what other promises did he make today? He talked about creating a ministry for native people so that indigenous people govern for themselves. He talked about sustainable agriculture and new technologies to continue providing jobs for people in the Amazon. But remember, Lula is a leftist. He's 77 years old. He came up politically through his unionist workers party, and he talks a lot about the poor and inequality. And here's a bit from when he was talking about the return of Brazil to the international stage. Voltamos para ajudar a construir uma ordem mundial pacífica, assentada no diálogo, no multilateralismo. He says we're back to help build a peaceful world order to end poverty and inequality. There will be no future as long as we continue, he says, digging a bottomless pit of inequalities between rich and poor. And while he gets a big applause at the UN conference for such a speech, he's had troubles back home emphasizing his support for the poor. Yeah, how is he doing in Brazil? Like, do you think he'll be able to keep all these promises that he's making? 
So last week, he talked about wanting to raise the federal spending cap to continue cash transfers to Brazil's poorest. And the markets just slapped him hard. The Real Brazil's uh, currency dropped nearly 4% that day. Um, Lula may have a very short honeymoon here when he takes office January 1st. This country is divided. Bolsonaro lost by a very slim margin, and his party is now the largest in Congress. He made a lot of gains in the election, and Brazil's economy is sluggish and still struggling post-pandemic and with high inflation. That is NPR's Carrie Khan in Rio de Janeiro. Thank you, Carrie. You're welcome. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR Marketplace comes up next. Should have partly cloudy skies into the evening and overnight hours. Temperatures dropping to the mid-30s tonight. Some strong winds kicking up. Tomorrow, lots of sunshine. Highs reaching the mid-40s still on the windy side. Sun should reappear on Friday, back up in the mid-40s. Celtics start up a three-game road trip tonight. First stop, Atlanta, 7.30 tip-off. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bentley University, where students learn the power of good business and how it can make the world a better place. Bentley University, a force for business, a force for good. And H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society, presenting The Marriage of Figaro, Mozart's greatest comedy, tomorrow and Friday at Symphony Hall, handelandhaydn.org.